Welcome to Evan the Counselor Live. I'm Evan the Counselor. I am beyond excited to release this episode. I recorded it a couple days ago, and you know, it's not necessarily directly connected to mental health, but in many ways it is. So on our show today, we have a man named Avisha. And he is a COVID researcher, and it's kind of interesting how he fell into this role actually fairly recently, uh, but we'll let him talk about that. But he has an amazing page on TikTok under Distilled Science. And, you know, since the pandemic and the depth of research he's done, he decided that it would be a great thing for him to do to start creating content and battling a lot of the misinformation out there with science. So, you know, I've been following this page for a while and really been learning a lot. And he's one of the handful of people throughout that I've trusted um, based on the way that he breaks down different studies and data and how he deciphers and um, dismantles disinformation. Um, so I just thought, hey, I want to reach out to this guy because, you know, I, I've been paying attention, you know, throughout the pandemic and I've listened to a lot of different voices and I've, you know, as someone who's interested in psychology and history, you know, this whole time as devastating as it certainly has been, has been, you know, quite fascinating in many ways to see how we react to these insanely stressful situations. And... So, you know, I've listened to a whole bunch of different voices. My opinion has changed pretty much daily about, you know, what makes sense and what we should do. So I followed really closely. Um, and throughout, I mean, despite all the good voices out there and all the great information, there's still like questions that come to mind that it's hard to find the answer to you know, especially in one place. And it's not like there's anyone I know personally who's an expert in this area that I could just call up and ask. Um, so, but Avisha and I, you know, we follow each other on social media and this is kind of how it goes when you form a social media creator buddy is you start to comment on some of their stuff and they comment on some of yours and you start to exchange words and then maybe a couple DMs and then eventually you just invite them to be on your podcast and just that's the course of the relationship. So uh, I decided to take our relationship to the next level. And uh, after some DMs, uh, I just asked him, hey, you know, would you want to be on my podcast? And to be honest, my motivation was not like, I guess I'll just put it to you this way. My primary motivation was like, I just want to talk to this guy. You know, I have so many questions as I've been following this as a lay person who's just been interested. And so he agreed and I was super excited and I figured, you know, that, you know, if this is something I would be so interested in, this would be something my followers would be interested in as well. And if you have any interest in any of the, the following topics that I'm going to list off that we talked about, um, you are going to love this. This is one of the most fascinating conversations I've ever had. You know, I don't always have the best attention span, but, you know, this went about two and a half hours and I was dialed in. Um, and just at the edge of my seat with this info because I'm a little bit of a nerd myself. So some of the things we cover um, just in general, it's like, where are we at two years into this pandemic you know, that very few people would thought would last this long? Looking back, what have we done right in our response and where have we fallen short? How do we use critical thinking to decide which messages to trust? 
the state of the scientific community and reasons to trust it and be skeptical at the same time. How do we balance free speech and trying to reduce deadly misinformation? Dr. Robert Malone's appearance on Joe Rogan and the responsibility of large platforms to pull content. Thinking errors we are susceptible to. The uniqueness of COVID-19 and its ability to wreak wreak havoc. The importance of effective scientific communication and why it could be so difficult. And we have how Avisha thinks we should move forward in a balanced approach. How to weigh the costs and benefits of COVID precautions and understanding the damage they may cause. How natural immunity stacks up against the vaccine. And one of Avisha's heroes, Bill Nye, and how maybe he should have been in the role, kind of like Fauci. Anyways, we cover this and so much more. And I think you are going to love this conversation. I think it is so important uh, for us to know some of this information. And it, it... you know, helped. And and like I said before, my views constantly do change the more information I get. And I kind of think that's how it should be. But I think that this conversation really did change a lot of my views. Um, You know, I I didn't really disagree with much that he said before, but it really did make me think, uh, you know, in, in different ways to how I was before. Anyways, enough of my jammering. Let's get into the podcast. I really hope you enjoy it. Oh, and one last thing. I want to apologize about the sound quality here. I don't know what happened. I don't know if my mic was disconnected, but it should be good enough. So enjoy. Let's see if we get this thing going. Yeah, so All our right. folks coming in, we're doing a podcast recording. We have our friend, is it Avisha? It is Avisha. All right, got it. Yep. Um, got it in one. Nice. <laughs> Um, yes, we have Avisha, and you all may know him as Distilled Science here on TikTok. Um, yeah, I mean, I, first off, I love your page. Um, you know, it's seems like it's your time, right? So you're, tell us a little more about you. You're a COVID researcher, and you have a lot of other cool posts, just science-y in general. So I've been in the sort of medical science space for decent ways now. I actually studied engineering back in college, got my like graduate degree, and then worked for a long time in the biomedical space. So I was doing quality control programs in medical devices in lots of different hospitals across the country. And that seems pretty far away from the current mm-hmm. bit. So after doing that for a ways, I started my own biotech company. And Whoa. that actually was through raising money to go through the FDA process when COVID hit and nobody cared about anything other than COVID. Like FDA said, if it's not COVID, we don't care. Investors said, if it's not COVID, we don't care. And I actually started working with a, one of the venture capital firms that had invested in my company, decided to spin up a new company that essentially tried to identify emerging technologies that would be helpful in the context of the pandemic and get them to stakeholders that can make the biggest difference. And that sort of went in parallel with my own curiosity, where basically from the very beginning of COVID, I was reading every piece of published research to come out because I thought the whole thing was just really interesting. And then we started layering on top of that, how can we possibly make use of science and technology to actually go and make a difference in the reopening process, in the prevention process, just to really help with regards to COVID. And I spent pretty much the first year of the pandemic reading, I'd spend three or four hours a day reading through medical journals, trying to figure out what do we currently know and how could that potentially impact what we're doing? And beginning of 2021, I realized I'm spending all this time just 
on the back lines, why don't I start sharing it with people and maybe help to cut through some of the misinformation that's been going around for a very well, long time. Unfortunately, the amount of misinformation around COVID is just been <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah, I definitely want to chat about that. You know, so but first of all, so you have your own biotech company. Is that what you're currently doing? Um, or is that kind of on hold until we... So that company is currently on hold. Well, we're now starting to spin it up again, go back to the fundraising table. It's basically, we developed a device that can refill expired EpiPens. So those things skyrocketed in price for many years. They used to be like a hundred bucks a pop, but now they're like over 600, 700 for a two pack. You need many different copies of them. So we realized that the epinephrine inside is like pennies on the dollar to manufacture. It's just because they can get away with charging what they do that they charge that. So we figured out you can just refill it. So are you employed right now by like one of these companies to do this work? So right now I actually have another company that's myself and several partners where we're basically working, as I said, to identify emerging technologies with regards to the pandemic and then try and get them into stakeholders to just like help governments, commercial players really adopt them. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. I got it now. That's super cool, man. That's oftentimes it involves like talking to schools, trying to help them to figure out how they can improve their ventilation, air purification, overall defense strategies, and just figuring out what different places are doing with regards to their reopening process and seeing how they can do it better. Wow. That's unbelievable. All right. So I'm talking to the right guy. And, you know, I, I reached out to you because, like, you know, in a similar way, like, I'm just like a fan of history. And as this all started coming out, I mean, in you know, kind of like a dark way, but it's like, like, we're living through history right now. Like, this is unbelievable. And it's been fascinating. And I've been trying to follow, you know, legitimate people who know what they're talking about. And, yeah, and so I think just over time, I've had some questions come up and as things have changed so i was just really curious to talk to you and you know i love your content and definitely get you know i, I feel like you're a, a trusted source among a lot of the misinformation that's sadly out there so i appreciate it Glad why do you why is that so what's what is the deal with all the misinformation well probably it originates with the fact that the most trusted sources when it comes to information ideally are the academic sources. It's the medical journals that for many, many years, the way scientists are trained to write for medical journals, it's like its own lexicon. It's its own niche that has so much jargon. And these people are not trained to write English in a accessible manner, but it's not even just that. It's like a prestige thing for them to be able to write esoteric language to make things sound sciencey and thereby get into the best journals because scientists were writing for other scientists and they're all speaking mm-hmm. the same sort of language. It was never written for the layperson to be able to go pull up PubMed, look at a nature article and say, oh, I know what's going on here. And that's aside from any informational background that you actually need to understand the topic. But even just the way that it's written is not very accessible. There's so you're kind of saying that the real good stuff is just boring. <laughs> honestly in hard to, hard to. yeah in part there there are times when i will come across a research article and the actual content is fascinating and groundbreaking and the way that it's written is makes you want to snore 
Or then you get the journalists who are going and writing an article about it, and half of what they write is actually wrong because the journalists aren't really trained to read these things. And oftentimes you get the headline effect where the headline is totally different from what the actual article even says if you know how to read it. For sure. And it, you know, it's like, I don't know if it's starting in the 70s or 80s with, you know, folks like Carl Sagan. And then now you have like Neil deGrasse Tyson and, you know, folks like Stephen Hawking, who are, you know, have been like these prolific science communicators and, you know, all folks that are, you know, like esteemed in their profession. So I believe, you know, who are able to break these things down to the masses and make them easier to understand and more digestible. And it seems like now it's more important than ever to have that. And I think this is like such a cool platform where folks like you don't have to go to NBC and like pitch this concept. You could go right on and there is like an element of merit, you know, meritocratic element of, you know, who's most engaging and you're doing quite well. Thank you. And yeah, it's definitely great that these days we can use technology to just directly access folks. Of course, that also leads into some of the problems that we've been experiencing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a double-edged sword. Yeah. Exactly. And, and yeah, do you think like, and as you're saying that, that there's like this element of like the misinformation being more exciting, it, like in and of itself, right? It's like this contrarian, you know, people have this distrust of institutions and, I don't know, there's like almost something cool about being a rebel. Like, is there... I mean, you're the psychologist here, but you're absolutely right how there are so many aspects of misinformation that makes it more viral. First, even just the negativity side, we know that negative news articles will spread faster mm. than positive ones. This goes into the evolutionary biology of our brain is primed to recognize threats and share threats a lot more than the positive, we pay mm -hmm. attention to the negative. You add that to the fact that when you're talking about misinformation, it's very easy to say five things in the span of 30 seconds that are all wrong. And mm -hmm. yet, if you've already said something about how you're an expert, then suddenly a lot of the people listening to that, if they already have some level of confirmation bias, they say, oh, this expert said these following things that he said there is sor some source for somewhere. And now this is another source of misinformation. Whereas if I want to go and try and debunk that, I need to spend hours on each sentence that he said so that I can do it with proper scientific rigor and say, these are all my sources that none of you will actually read. But because yes. I've done my homework, I can cite but that takes just so much more work. And then the odds of everyone who saw the first thing seeing the second thing, not very high. Yeah, I think it, you know, at the end of the day, it just seems to be a breakdown. I don't know if it's just like in this country, especially compared to some of our other peers, but there seems to be a breakdown in ability to use critical thinking. Right. I mean, just personally, I believe that is like one of the most fundamental skills you can have. And you know, essential for survival on every level to be able to differentiate what is true and what is false. And sometimes there's no consequence for doing that. And it's interesting, like I've heard some people arguing, like, and maybe like you probably know better, but like, let's say during times of like smallpox or the Spanish flu, people didn't really have the luxury of misinformation, you know, or like contrarian belief when there's you know, bodies like piled up next to you. Is there like 
like with COVID, it just seems to be this like in this weird middle place where it's like just deadly enough to certainly get our attention, but not enough to like scare a lot of people. It's definitely true that it leads towards this middle ground of folks that when you're talking about risk that can apply on a population level, but is not all that high on a personal level, it makes things several stages removed. And when it's not visceral, you don't really understand it. It's like anytime you're talking about a risk that is below 5-10% for a negative outcome for yourself, it's really hard to conceptualize mm -hmm. this. This goes into the whole problem where humans do not have a ability to properly understand statistics instinctively. It's why people play the lottery. It's why people gamble. There is no ability for the human mind to naturally easily comprehend statistics. And therefore, as soon as it's... It, as soon as it gets down to the point where the anecdotes start overpowering it. So if I say one in a hundred people die from COVID, that, that's not an accurate number. This is an example. But if I say one in a hundred people die from COVID, then that's enough that within my network of 500 to a thousand people, I will probably know five to 10 people who died from COVID. That makes it real for me. But as soon as I drop mm -hmm. that down to one in a thousand or one in 5,000, the number of people who will know people who got it but did not die from it is very high. And then suddenly the anecdotes are, oh, so-and-so got sick and they got better, even though across the nation you are having thousands and thousands of people dying from this. So suddenly you have it where their ability to instinctively intuit statistics based on anecdotal evidence is being hijacked. And when the primary concern is population health, there's no way to really grab onto that. Well, yeah, and it seems like, too, you know, another unique feature of this disease is just how skewed it is to folks who are elderly, right, who are maybe, you know, away in homes and so who aren't, you know, so maybe not as many people. Like, like, like personally, you know, I'm lucky I don't have anyone close in my circle that I know who has died from COVID. You know, I don't know. You know what I mean? So it's... Yeah. Like, Absolutely. Yes, it's kind of hard to feel that sense of immediacy and, you know, the need to really critically think to make a life and death decision when it's, what is the statistic at the end of the day? And I know it's very skewed in one direction or other, depending on age, whatever. It's like 0.01% die. So it really makes no sense to talk about the actual death rate without yeah. uh, breaking it down by age group. Age group, because yeah. Because it is just so, so different. And when you're talking about the over 65 age group, it is over 1% yeah. might end up dying. And yeah. at the same time, it's significantly lower when it comes to the younger groups. But as long as we're talking about this, the key point really is that death is not the only negative outcome. Just being in the hospital is no fun. That's something that should be avoided. But long COVID incidents is way higher than most people really properly understand. And their vac vaccines thankfully have shifted this to a decent degree, but especially when it comes to those who are not vaccinated, it's somewhere between one in three in 10 are experiencing significant long-term symptoms months after getting sick. That is large enough that you would think it would be able to latch on. Well, yeah, and I think that's a huge thing that's missed, you know, when it just seems that there's this hyper focus and it has to be due to some bias against the vaccine, right? It's just like something that is just scary, you know, has become a scary thing. So people, 
it's like this really narrow focus on, okay, I'm putting this thing <clears throat> in my body and there's some chance something bad could happen. It's not well researched. Okay. So there's some reasonable questions that you would want to ask, but you know, for the folks who I've talked to, who I know well, who've decided against it. I, I always try to bring up the point, like it's not about like the vaccine as much as it is what you're comparing the vaccine to. Cause I'm like saying like the vaccine could be a hundred, like a, I don't know if the number, I mean, literally it could be a hundred thousand times worse than it is right now. And it could still be the right choice to take it. You know, that's why you, exactly. And that's why when the CDC is looking at policy regarding the vaccine, <clears throat> the way their analysis works is always on a population level. It's saying, what do we know about the statistics of potential negative side effects? The primary ones that have actually been demonstrated are myocarditis and pericarditis, mostly just myocarditis. And then for certain vaccines, you've got some uh, uh, venous thrombosis. But the incidence rates there, what they look at is how many people are going to be getting this vaccine. And the assumption is if the entire population gets it, then how many cases of myocarditis would we expect? On the flip side of the scale, what we do is we say, what are the negative side effects of getting the disease? Mm. It's how likely are you to be hospitalized? How likely are you to have negative long-term side effects? How likely are you to die? And those are the two comparisons. It's in aggregate, if everyone gets vaccinated, how many total negative things happen? And then what's the trade-off? And if those two were equal, they would not be mandating anything because it would be a significant choice. Yeah, but the fact yeah. it's so asymmetric. I mean, it's like, it's like would, would you say it's like factors of like, a million times safer like i know it's different stratified but like yeah it's on the order of tens of thousands hundreds of thousands to millions it's literally like nobody has died from getting the vaccine the only and people can yell about bears but the only actual documented cases of death following vaccination that are linked to vaccination are in some extremely elderly folks who were basically on the brink of death anyway. And if they got a cold, they probably would have died. And what mm. happened is the vaccine did provoke a very strong immune response and may have led towards them dying. This is a very, very, very tiny percentage of the population, like literally numbered in out of the tens. Yeah, and you know, and I've like seen your videos, like, you know, debunking like Robert Malone on Joe Rogan. And it's like, even if like what he is saying is true, it's still just like, we're talking millions and millions of times safer to take it you know it's like we've tested you know that's one of the other things i try to tell folks is like we've tested this thing now on how many million like the sand like it's an insane sample size and i guess other vaccines are going to go through the fda process which could take years and years but because of the immediacy of this like all attention went to this and it was like on hyperdrive you know to make sure this thing was safe and this is not the first mrna vaccine i heard that like Right when they sequenced COVID, it was like, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, there's like maybe a couple weeks that someone said they did the sequence or something and they said, okay, this is what we would have to do. But then they had to test it. Like they figured it out really quickly of what needed to be done. So the technology was at the point where we knew how to make mRNA vaccines. It, the, yeah. the challenges in that process, the one that we've been spending the last 40 years getting past was the fact that mRNA degrades really, really quickly in the body. So you need to actually get it to the cell where it can send the instructions and cause your body to create that spike protein. That's a matter of both formulating the mRNA and also the package to get it into your cells. This is what has been studied for the last several decades. 
there were a couple of vaccines that were already produced and in early stage trials by the time COVID hit using this tech. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as we got the sequence for SARS-CoV-2, within days, we were able to just run it through that technology and say, look, we now have an mRNA vaccine that is making use of this new genetic code. It's like you put it in the printer, you print out this new one. And then it's the process of testing where we did not actually take any safety shortcuts. It was just all the logistical shortcuts that got it to market as soon as possible. Well, like in the Russians kind of put one out, right? They're just like, right? Didn't they, they put one out before. Was their vaccine pretty effective and safe at the end of the day? Unfortunately, Sputnik has not shown great results. It, it hasn't shown negative Sputnik. safety outcomes. It's just the overall efficacy has yeah. not been as good as we would like. It's good. But probably better than nothing. Right? Oh, yeah, it's definitely better than nothing. It gives the immune system uh, somewhat of a head start. But especially now in the Omicron wave, Sputnik has done almost nothing. Oh, Sputnik. <laughs> is your is your name Russian? No, it's actually Israeli. Yeah, that was my second. I can't prove it now, but that was the second guess in my head. Was I'm like, it's either Russian or some kind of Jewish yeah. Hebrew. It's my a variation on the name Abishai. Uh, okay. Are your parents from Israel? Uh, yeah. Are you from well, Israel? sort of. They both they both moved to Israel for one year after getting married. My mother grew up in Israel for a while. I was born in Israel, and then they moved oh. away, like back to the states almost immediately afterwards. So, okay. technically dual citizenship, but nice more American. Well, it seems like the Israelis have always been like you know like throughout the pandemic. It's like, well, let's see what's going on in Israel. Like what. Why is that? For good reason. It, there are several reasons behind that. Mm -hmm. So first is that the Israeli government made a really clever deal with Pfizer at the start of the pandemic, saying, we will let you use us for your data gathering if you give us early access to these vaccines. So they said, we'll lock in the price, we'll commit to paying for it, we'll commit to giving you all of the efficacy data in exchange for guaranteeing X amount of supply. And because Israel is basically a single payer system, it's a nationalized healthcare that yeah. they can basically have a very easy distribution network. It's a tiny, tiny country. So it's very, very easy for everyone within a couple hour drive to just come in somewhere, get the vaccine. And then it's, I mean, similarly for any sort of boosters, it's just a very easy distribution. They didn't have any of those challenges. It's a very modernized country. So between those two, they made the deal. They were able to get the early access. They committed to giving that data in exchange for it. And then they basically have been, you know, <laughs> I can say something about Israeli uh, psychology as well, in that they're the sorts to be very lackadaisical about certain things in that COVID was doing pretty, pretty bad in Israel until they started getting vaccinations because a lot of them are not as likely to follow certain safety protocols. The hard-headed Israeli. Yeah, but then they go and they all get vaccinated, and suddenly they were one of the first to really be able to deal with it very well. And then because of that sort of single-payer system, the government has been very, very involved, and they've always been the first ones along, uh, basically to do this whole booster thing. So they were the first ones to roll out the third shot. They are the first ones mm -hmm. rolling out the fourth shot. The fourth shot is interesting because the data has not been all that great in terms of efficacy of fourth shot in young folks to prevent further infection, unless you're immunocompromised. So odds are, if we are going to be getting a fourth shot, it'll be at much longer spacing than has been so far tested. But that data is coming out of Israel because they have been trying these things. They're basically confident enough that these are safe, that it's all just been about, okay, well, 
we're going to play on the safe side and say, we know the vaccine is safe. We know that it, it boosts immunity. So with the initial data, we will start giving it to people and see what happens. And yeah, it actually has proven to be very, very good for them. For sure. And so right now in Israel, and I mean, you see this in some of the other European countries, they're just saying we're open. You know, is Israel at that point? I mean, are they doing that much better given the, like some of these countries that have, I don't know, like UK, like a lot of these have a higher percentage than us. Are they doing better right now? Uh, to a reasonable degree. So Israel right now is experiencing their Omicron wave, which yeah. cases are spiking, but hospitalizations and deaths are holding pretty, pretty steady so far. It's going up a little bit, but it hasn't been all that bad as of yet. And overall, they are pretty open. They, they implemented a green pass system fairly early where it was show evidence of vaccination to do anything. And then as long as you do that, you can do whatever you want, pretty much. So they, they were pretty much the first ones to roll that out. And it's been the modus operandum for, for the last year. For sure. And... And this is where, like, maybe I get a little bit frustrated with kind of the, I want to say, like, mainstream media, you know, but, like, the main forms of communication, even from some of the folks who I really, you know, lean on for, like, good info, is that there's kind of this, like, maybe the folks who are more precautious, um, you know, who will talk about, all right, guys, we got to be careful. This Omicron, we got like really, you know, rates of hospitalization, um, you know, uh, how contagious it is. And we're seeing cases, 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 yet they don't really talk as much about like, you know, the, the hospitalizations and death. And of course, we want to avoid hospitalizations. But at the end of the day, it's like, how many people are actually like dying or getting very serious complications? And how many of these folks are unvaccinated. It's like at the end of the day, I feel like that's what like really relevant information. No, because other people are scared as hell. They're like, Oh my God, look at the numbers. And it's like, well, your odds, if you're vaccinated and relatively healthy are like almost next to nothing. I mean, is that an overstatement? Um, I do think that going forward, we're going to start using uh, hospitalizations as a better indicator than actual case counts. So that's something that basically ever since vaccination, as you start seeing a decoupling of cases from hospitalizations and deaths, the hospitalizations are probably going to end up being a better indication of just how severe the pandemic is, because the target here is endemicity, wherein people are getting it, but through the combination of treatment, vaccination, other uh, environmental precautions, the overall negative outcomes are basically flatlining. And th that's really the target. But I just checked, and it does look like deaths in Israel are going up to some degree. So they're, we'll see what happens there. But that's it. Why do you, why do you think that is? If, what is their percentage about a vaccination in Israel? Mm, it's probably in the upper 70% range, but that still leaves a lot of people who are unvaccinated. And that's the problem. So Israel had really, really fast vaccination at the start mm -hmm. but then there's a percentage of the population that's still unwilling to get vaccinated and that has held constant and that's where you're seeing these cases happening so to give you some data from the current omicron wave uh there was a study just published by the cdc looking at basically the end of delta and the beginning of omicron and they found that the incidents of incidents and hospitalization rates among the unvaccinated 
were 12 and 83 times as high as for boosted people, meaning the incidence of COVID cases, 12 times as high in the unvaccinated as compared to vaccinated and boosted, and incidence of hospitalization, 83 times higher in the unvaccinated than in the boosted. And those numbers drop when you start talking about without boosters, it's actually more like four and 13. So if you just had two vaccine doses and not a booster, then you're four times as like less likely to get at any sort of infection than being unvaccinated and 13 times less likely to end up in the hospital, which does mean that boosters are very important even now for both protection versus infection and hospitalization. Was that something that was like predict, like, you know, like you're a kid, right? You get the hep, you know, and you know, like hep, whatever I'm blanking on, you know, all the ones you get as a kid, like MMR and you know, all yes. that stuff. Right. And it seems to be kind of like a one-time thing. Uh, you don't get it again a yes. year later. Did we know that this was going to happen with COVID, that this was going to wane pretty quickly? Like We had a pretty good idea. And we here's why. Yeah. So with the MMR vaccine, the thing about measles is that it is a type of disease that becomes what's called viremic. When you get it, it hits your bloodstream and hangs out there. And then your antibodies get developed and they also hang out in the bloodstream and you get you get sick, you develop your antibody response, your B cells, your T cells, you fight off the disease and that immunity basically lasts for life. We've known this, we've seen this. But what we have seen with other respiratory diseases is something different. So for the same reason why there's a new flu vaccine every year, some of that is because there are new strains of the flu that go around consistently, periodically. But part of that is because when you're talking about a respiratory disease, the vaccine that you get intramuscularly will produce some level of antibodies that circulate, some level of memory B cells and memory T cells. And there are two issues. Number one is you're not getting quite as much in the respiratory tract, which is important for stopping mild infection and transmission. But also, because the disease itself is not one that really reaches the bloodstream, it doesn't become viremic, the type of immune response that you get from it is not as long-lasting. We have seen with previous coronaviruses that people who got sick from the coronavirus once, so there was a study done pre-COVID where they took a circulating human coronavirus that's responsible for cold-like symptoms, yeah. and they did a human challenge trial where they infected people with this virus. And then one year later, they tried to reinfect them with the same strain. And 84% of them were not able to be reinfected, but 16% of them were. And that's with the exact same strain. But you're already seeing some levels of reinfection there, showing right off the bat that with coronaviruses, immunity does wane, and it wanes a lot faster than for something like measles. And when you start adding in mutations, then suddenly your ability to get reinfected goes way up because only a portion of the immune response that you developed is able to target the new shape of the mutated virus. Got it. Well, I'll pretend like I fully got that, but the <laughs> bottom line doesn't last as long. <laughs> Basically, there are right. certain types of diseases where the immunity that you build lasts for life, and that's what you get from a natural infection. There are other types of diseases that even when you get naturally infected, you will get reinfected, and coronaviruses are in the latter category. Yeah. The body does not produce lifelong immunity to coronaviruses. How many, like, like roughly, how many of the common colds we were getting before this are coronaviruses? Family? It's in the 20 to 30% range. Okay. So it's, you know, certainly nothing new, but like, you know, it seems like a lot of folks, you know, who really 
studied these things. Like I followed, you know, like Mike Osterholm out of the University of Minnesota. Are you familiar with him? No. He's with um, SIDRAP, the Center for Infectious Disease. I got a University of Minnesota. I guess he's like a, um, uh, he does like almost like forensic and like, his, you know, studies an epidemiologist. Um, and he was actually one of the first people on Joe Rogan when the pandemic, he was one of the first people he had on there. He's a good old, you know, local guy here. Right. Um, you know, and, you know, he's written like all these books and kind of like some of these like kind of. If it were to happen, this is how I guess it would look like. And it was coronavirus coming out of China, wet market, you know, and uh-huh. uh, like we we knew this was a pretty, you know. Oh, yeah. There, over the last couple ability. of decades, people have been predicting something like this could happen. When I was and, watching like, uh, like was that Netflix, I don't remember if it was like a, one of those like quick like how it works, you know, like type shows, but it was like Bill Gates talking about kind of like warning people like, well, you know, like the year before, Hey, we should probably, this is something we should be thinking about and preparing for. And then sure enough, like maybe yeah. it's Bill Gates' fault. I mean, it's easy to blame him for jinxing it. People do love blaming Bill Gates for things, but yeah, it's what? really, Oh, go ahead. It's really a factor of the interconnectivity of the globe now that since we started connecting billions of people through mass transportation, people traveling everywhere, it was only a matter of time before somewhere there was some disease that came about that we would start transmitting. And honestly, we're lucky that it wasn't way worse than it has been. What would, what would, where would we be? What would that look like? You know, and how far off of a possibility was it that this one could have been a hundred times deadlier, thousand, you know, like kind of like the O3 SARS. Now, would that would that have meant that just more people would die? We would take it more seriously. It wouldn't be able to infect as many people. Or is it fairly plausible that it could have been a hundred times deadlier and just as contagious and following a similar pattern? So... There are a couple of factors in play there. It's unlikely that it would have gone and like wiped out the planet, but it's not like that's impossible. So one of the reasons why COVID was able to spread like it did is because A, its symptoms are pretty similar to a lot of other respiratory diseases, which makes it a little bit harder to spot, especially mm-hmm. at the early stages. B, it has this quality of having asymptomatic spread, wherein the virus is able to replicate within mm-hmm. your system for a 48-hour period before oftentimes you start seeing symptoms and it still is possible to be fully contagious. So because of that, it's what allowed it to spread so rapidly in the early phases. People will get exposed. Within a couple of days, they'd be infectious. And then only a couple of days later do they start feeling enough symptoms to think, oh, I might be infectious. I will now start to isolate. By the time they isolated, they'd already spread it to five more people, and now it was able to go like wildfire. And the thing that people often have been talking about, people always say, oh, but these diseases just mutate to become less deadly. And that's not entirely true. That's something that is bandied around. It originated from basically virology work done in the late 1800s, early 1900s, some theories based on a very, very small subset. And Here's what you have to think about when it comes to selection pressure for a virus. There's the first phase, when it comes to COVID at least, wherein it is spread. 
And then there's the second phase where it's replicated in the system. It starts going deeper into organ systems beyond the respiratory tract. It turns the immune system against itself. It puts people in the hospital. But most of the spread doesn't happen in that later phase. So from the virus uh, Darwinian survival perspective, it almost doesn't matter whether or not someone dies in the latter phase. All that matters is how it works in the first phase. How will it replicate? How will it spread? That's how evolution works in terms of natural selection. So yes, yeah. it could have been that it was way more deadly and everyone who gets it in the second week dies and the first week spreads it. But it just so happened that wasn't the case. Yeah, it's just like another one of these, you know, it just seems like there's, there's so many things about this coronavirus that are just unique, right? That make it just that much more tricky and how we perceive it and how we perceive the danger and how, uh, you know, it, it's just like in that weird sweet spot, you know, that people, you know, it's, it's super contagious, but yet it's, you know, it spreads when you're not contagious. And then a lot of people, it's my, you know, it's just like, there's all these weird yeah. kind of things about it that just make it where we're at today, two years later, just going crazy. I mean, it's just like, and it seems like the you know tensions are just rising as we get deeper and deeper into it of people getting more and more, you know, sick of this and wanting to move on. And, you know, I remember thinking at the beginning, I'm like, maybe more so than most people thought. I was like, no, this will be like a, a year, you know, a good year of this. I would not have guessed like two years. What, like, what did you think at the, like towards the beginning? Like, what was your prediction? So <laughs> this is a little embarrassing, but at the very start, when I first started hearing about COVID and the first data started coming out from overseas, I wrote an article where I did like a full analysis of everything we knew about the current spread, the death rates, the age breakdowns. And my conclusion was that for someone who is of my age bracket, overall health level, the odds of my getting it and dying from it were so low as to be not something to worry about at all. And I therefore concluded that, look, for someone who is older, you have to be careful. But for someone who is younger, then just be careful not to spread it to older folks. So kind That of like has sort of played out, but sort of not in the sense that what I didn't really take into account at the start was the ability to transmit to those who are more vulnerable in a way that would cause this sort of exponential spread combined with the fact that the whole long COVID thing really brought it home for even the younger population. Because at the start, if the, if the only worry was dying, then honestly, you would not get most young people caring about this all that much. It would just be this whole weird dynamic wherein they had to isolate and have two levels of society wherein either you had interaction with vulnerable people, vulnerable people, or you do not. The fact that you have long COVID on top of it means that there is no spectrum in which you can only care about other people or not, but for yourself, there is no issue. Now, there always is some issue for yourself and some issue for others. And then it's where do you place yourself on that risk tolerance spectrum as well as your social responsibility spectrum? Yeah, that's what, that's what makes it so tricky. Because so many times, like, my mind has changed throughout this where I'm like, all right, you know, it's time to move on. And, you know, how risky is this? But then I think, okay, I have these people around me who are uniquely vulnerable. You know, I'm in a lucky position. I get, you know, I could work from home. I got enough hobbies doing this where I'm not relying on being outside. I live in Minnesota. So half the time, I don't want to go outside anyways. Right. But, you know, for a lot of people, it's like they don't have all those luxuries and 
you know, this really does affect their mental health, but that, you know, that is something to weigh. And, you know, for a lot of the folks who have been resistant towards vaccines, you know, and they're, you know, and they make all these arguments like, well, you know, this is you know, something I'm putting in my body. We don't know. But it, like at the end of the day, it's like, you know, even if you're not at risk, like a lot of, a lot of people are and that, in that singular decision, especially that decision, if everyone made that decision, we're talking a million. I mean, how many more people would die if we didn't have the vaccine? I mean, it could be in the U.S., maybe another mill. Yeah, I don't know. Easily. And that's something that I think is going to define the next phase of the pandemic. It's how do we return to normal as much as possible while still maintaining maximum safety for those who are older and immunocompromised? Those two are not always hand in hand. Isn't that, you know, isn't that though, like kind of like, like what you said at the very beginning and then Sweden's approach, it kind of like, there's kind of some similarities, like, and like what you're saying now, like in this last phase, um, where that's the approach they took, that we're going to be mostly open. We're going to protect those that we know are vulnerable. Why, like, was that the wrong move? So... When you look at the comparison between Sweden and all of the surrounding countries, which are the best case controls in terms of mm. how they performed in their area, it seems like they had worse outcomes than many of mm. the surrounding countries, which indicates that maybe they were a little bit too lax with what they did. From a overall thought process, like is that the type of way we need to be thinking about it to some level, but it's all about balancing how do you protect those people? Like even in Sweden, the people who are dying are mostly the older and immunocompromised who got sick based on what they did. For us going forward, it's going to be a question of first, how do we stack the defenses in a way to minimize risk for everyone? And one of the things that is going to be the missing part of the puzzle that is about to become a thing is the antiviral treatment. So Paxlovid showed an 89% ability to reduce yeah. the risk of hospitalization as an oral antiviral pill when given within the first couple of days of infection. When you take that 90% risk reduction and add it on top of the protection from vaccination, Add that on top of someone who's already pretty young, maybe add in some better building controls in terms of infection spread. That right there might be enough to say, look, we have a good ability to prevent you from getting it. And once you get it, we've got a pretty solid lineup of treatments that then we can keep you from dying. And that's really the goal. It's can we get this to the point where the overall increase in hospitalizations and deaths, should we not be doing any type of social controls is no higher than any sort of other normal disease that we have been accustomed to. So if we can get the risk level so that it really is like the flu that we have been accustomed to, it so far has not gotten to that point. Mm -hmm. But I think we will end up getting it to that point where the combination of prior immunity treatments and specific increased controls for those who are at greater risk, that is what is going to be able to get us there. If... You know, I don't know if it's realistic, and I don't know how much we count kids in this too, but like if 90% instead of, I don't know, was in the U.S. 60, you know, some seven, you know, tops, um, would we be at flu levels if like everyone who could be vaxxed is? If 
everyone who could possibly be vaccinated were vaccinated, and those who were immunocompromised got their fourth shots. Combine that with the treatments, and we'd be at pretty close to flu levels. It's unfortunate that we're not quite there yet, but especially when... For like reopening everything, like with that, because it seems like the lines like moves and at any point you could, you know, it's like at the beginning they're saying, okay, hey, we're just doing this so the hospitals don't overflow. Yeah. Right. And then they said, okay, well, once that started to happen, I was like, oh, we're doing, you know, and there's always a reason that they seem to be all good reasons. But, um, you know, I, I feel like that's kind of important to decide at the beginning, like, what is the line? Because, you know, there's you know, so much fear and we're getting so used to this and there are so many folks like some of my followers and, you know, and I mentioned you like, you know, some of the studies where folks, you know, it's so much political. If you're like more on the left, like you greatly overestimate how dangerous it is. Um, you know, it seems like there's going to maybe, you know, be some folks once it is at the flu, who are still going to be like super scared. There definitely will be. And you're right that there is both a segment of the population that is overcautious, overestimating all the risks. And then on the flip side, you've got people who are not cautious enough. And I think one area that they don't rarely take into account is population, uh, like positivity levels, meaning for a given point in time, how cautious you have to be right now, anywhere in the US is way, way more than say four months ago. Over last summer, in most areas in June and July, risk levels for most social activities, if you were fully vaccinated, were very low. But what we're seeing right now during the Omicron peak is, yes, Omicron is a little bit less worrisome from a disease severity perspective, but it's also a lot more transmissible. And as we are seeing with the hospitalization and death peaks that are really going upwards, that that reduction in severity is not enough to stop people from dying and going to the hospital. But based on the current modeling of both Omicron and just a combination of vaccination, masking, third dose, booster doses, there's some really good models that are looking at, you know, the end of March as sort of being the point where we start returning to that very low background levels. And when it comes to what you are doing from a personal risk prevention perspective, what I do if one in 10 people in a room might have COVID versus one in a thousand people, Mm -hmm. it's totally different. The risk level of me while wearing a mask in a one in 10 room is way higher than me not wearing a mask in a one in a thousand room. Mm -hmm. But people haven't really been taking that very closely into account. Like with the whole school reopening thing, one of the big components there really needs to be what is the current population transmission level and how do we keep that below a certain baseline? With the primary focus, of course, being at what le- at what what's the threshold wherein it starts getting to be immunocompromised or the sheer numbers are high enough that even those who are less immunocompromised are going to start ending up in the hospital. And that's a mathematical epidemiology question. Yeah. um, Yeah. You know, and I think it's, you know, hard for a lot of folks, at least like I kind of go back and forth on this in my head where it's like, you know, if you're doing the responsible things, right. If you're, you know, getting vaccinated, if you're getting the third shot, you know, that your risk goes down 
so far and that just such a vast majority of folks who are still dying, which is a lot of people. And I do think there's this element of like, that we don't talk about enough, which is it's old people. So it doesn't matter. Um, now one, like an actuarial or, you know, could say like, well, it's years of life, but like, you know, still these are like human beings or older folks, but you know, anyways, that, you know, it's like, why do I got it? Why do I have to keep doing this? Like the folks who, you know, and there's a lot of folks in here who are, you know, saying a lot of, you know, things that are a little more conspiratorial or they're, um, you know, more hesitant. Um, but, you know, they don't, you know, someone like they don't care. Their, their level of risk is higher. They're not going to get vaccinated. Therefore, this is going to continue. Is there ever a point where we say, hey, that, you know, you want personal freedom, you have that personal choice. And then the rest of us who are vaccinated are going to move on. We have our risk, you have yours. And what what are the flaws in that approach? Or is it just a moral thing? So I think we clearly will get to that point. Mm-hmm. And there's always this dichotomy of what is my personal risk? What is the social obligation that relates to the population level risk? And before we had vaccines, it was anytime you encounter someone, your odds of transmitting it to them were pretty high. The people who are the most vulnerable and need to be protected at all costs just because of the numbers involved and how deadly this was and how transmissible it was. Once we got to the point of having vaccines, then it's a matter of the vaccines make you a lot less likely to go to the hospital and to die. And if someone is vaccinated, then the question is, oh, but maybe they're at such a low risk that it doesn't matter what those around them do. Then it gets into the thornier question of, when you're talking about someone who has done everything in their power to protect themselves, they've gotten vaccinated, they've gotten boosted, they wear a mask when possible, but they are one of the unlucky few whose immune system doesn't function as well as others. And they also want to be able to go out and eat at a restaurant and go to a Broadway show in the confidence that those around them have taken the same sort of precautions so that their risk is not very high as well. And they can therefore have return to normal along with the rest of us. Yeah. And, you know, as I go back and forth in my head, that's kind of a conclusion in some ways that I came to was, yeah, even, you know, so if, if we did that, right. If, if we just said, Hey, we're going to open up you're in your camp or in ours, you're going to have more deaths. That's the risk you're willing to take. You know, however, like, you know, now the disease is spreading more. Those folks who are immunocompromised are more likely now to catch it and die by no fault of their own. Um, But then you have the hospitals continuing to be overwhelmed. You know, they're understaffed. People are leaving. People are getting out of the field. There's the, you know, people resistant to the vaccine. So, like the you know, so it's like we have these, like, people in our society, healthcare workers, who are just being grinded down to the bone um, and it's putting a huge weight on our system. Um, and then the other thing that kind of comes to mind is like, you know, yeah, you have that right to not take the vaccine, die, whatever. Right. And I could just say that's you, but at the same time, like somebody dying is like, very consequential to a lot of people around them. Like they have kids and 
you know, it's not their kid's choice, right? So we're like almost protecting the person who doesn't want to be, but then their kids don't have a choice whether they're their parent. And that would be really devastating for their lives to have a parent die. So there's like all these reasons why it's hard, you know, it, it's hard to get to that. It's just, I'm doing what I can, you do. Yeah. One of the things that really frustrates me with the whole process is that it's one thing to say, I'm making an informed decision for myself to not get vaccinated, and then I will not be in a context wherein my decision impacts another person. I.e., if I were someone who did not have any first or second degree interaction with someone who is immunocompromised, I'm willing to take on the increased risk for myself, then, you know, I don't have any kids. That's not the sort of person I care about all that much, whether or not they get vaccinated. Like, you do you. The problem is, I unfortunately do not think that they are making an informed decision. And that just makes me sad. The reasoning being that most people who are deciding to not get vaccinated are not doing it because of some sort of malicious intent where they think vaccines are evil and they're trying to in some way hurt society. No, these people really think that vaccines are harmful. Them yeah. not getting it is the best thing they could do for themselves and their loved ones. This is all based on some chain of information that has gotten to them that it's like a game of broken telephone and weirdly shifted incentives and psychology, wherein what they have surrounded themselves with, both from an information and a social perspective, leads them to a position where they truly believe that getting vaccinated is the poorer choice. But you get into this weird question. Um, I mean, to, to what level is the blame on them versus just how we have decided to disseminate scientific information? Yeah, and that was one of the things yeah, I wanted to chat about. Um, you know, how would you grade? Um, and again, we're going to weigh it on degree of difficulty. And I think that's one thing we kind of miss, you know, when because I think there's some easy, fair criticisms of, you know, whether it's the FDA, CDC, government response, you know, um, you know, how would you grade that? And, you know, even given that we got to give them a little slack because this is a crazy virus that's constantly changing. We're learning new info, but just like in the way we communicated it, the way we went about it, like, do we had bear, do they bear some responsibility for some of the resistance we're seeing now? I definitely think that things could have been done much, much better than they were on so many different accounts. Yes, the majority of what has been said by the CDC and the FDA has been pretty accurate. There are certain particular cases, like the amount of time it took them to acknowledge the airborne transmission of the virus was absolutely insane based on the body of evidence that we had about respiratory viruses in general and COVID in particular. So that, that right there is like a massive pet peeve of mine. It should not have taken a year for people to acknowledge the airborne uh, aerosol spread as opposed to just droplets. And that's something that even now half the people who are medical professionals who talk about masks think that they wear a mask only to stop the spread of droplets and it's just source control. It's not protecting them. All of these things are just false based on all of the data. I so, never understood that like you're protecting other people, but not yourselves. Like, well, I'm wearing a mask. You know, it's got to have some level. You would think. Or a <laughs> I don't know. Seems common sense, but. 
I mean, yeah, the, the thought there was, oh, well, I'm just stopping the uh, large droplets, but it's not enough to stop the small stuff. So the droplets originate from me and it filters them. But then any sort of aerosol from you just goes right through. But th that's just not how it yeah. works. It's, it's really not. Well, that was one of the one of the big blunders, it seemed like, because like even at, at the time, I was kind of like with my ignorance, I'm still kind of like, huh? You know, where they're like. And I know, and I guess they came back later and said, oh, it was in regards to at the very beginning of like, no, don't wear masks. It's not going to be helpful at all. Where I was even I'm like, how could it not be at least a little, you know, like, yeah, you know, like folks that, in Asia, they're, you know, they're wearing masks, you know, people who like in Korea, you know, it's like they're wearing masks all the time. It's like they've been through this before. Why did they say that? Did they really not know? Did they really think that? Or they're kind of being like, we got to keep it for the healthcare workers. Let's just calm down. So the primary motivation there was really that they were trying to conserve supply. They were saying, leave the medical grade masks for the medical professionals who need it the most. And at the time, there was a lot of messaging around, you know, cloth masks doing absolutely nothing and being worthless. That was false and not very well understood at the time. And even then we had enough data indicating that, yeah, it would still do something. Then you've got the surgical masks that there was a lot of mixed messaging around whether or not they were protective in one direction or the other direction. And it was one thing to say, save all the N95s for the healthcare professionals. We know those work really well, but there should have been way, way earlier on better messaging around what they do, how they work. If you look at just the, current medical literature around masking that existed before 2020. There's a lot. There's a whole lot indicating that, yes, masks work. They're effective just from the basic physical properties. We know how to filter things. If some of the air is going through it, then it is filtering out some of the virus. And we know that the likelihood of infection and severity of infection is related to the amount of virus you're exposed to. It's not just a yes or no. There were human challenge trials done with influenza where they slowly upped the dose of how much they gave people and saw increased likelihood of infection and infection severity. This is the case for most illnesses. So when you're wearing a mask, part of what you're doing is it doesn't matter if you get exposed, if you don't get exposed. When you are wearing a mask, if you do get exposed, the amount you're getting exposed to is at least lower and therefore your outcomes are likely to be better. I think that was something that was missed. I mean, it's wrap this one before but like am i wrong in my memory that at the very beginning they said no need to wear a mask whether it was like i don't remember them saying n95 i remember them saying to everybody no need don't wear a mask it's, it's pointless is that if i so bring that they, they said don't wear a mask and they said if you look at like the the fine print, it was that N95s are what we know to be effective and we need to save those for the healthcare workers. It was, there were some statements that seemed to indicate that they were saying that other masks don't do anything. Others were a bit more ambiguous. You'd mm -hmm. have to go through the like different types of announcements in the different CDC pages and Twitter handles and stuff. Like there, there was a lot of equivocating in various directions. There were a couple statements to the effect of, yeah, masks don't help don't wear them. There were more to the effect of save these for the healthcare workers. The only type of masks that we know work are the ones that we are going to save for them. And then 
that implies some things about the other ones. Yeah, I just remember, you know, as a lay person hearing the message and saying, masks, like literally that's what I heard and probably other people, you know, interpret it the same way is that no need to wear masks right now. And, uh, you know, even I was like, how can I not be loved? But yeah, so I mean, definitely that seemed to be a blunder. Which in a <laughs> I will tell you that in the start of the pandemic, as part of this whole trying to get effective technologies to companies and governments that could make use of them, one of the things that I started off being involved in was helping hospitals vet PPE to figure out what was authentic, what was counterfeit, mm. how they could actually get good supplies. This is back during all the shortages. And I became an expert in all the different types of documentation required to demonstrate that you had a proper mask, all the different types of tests, both in the US and in China and in basically every different country had its own sort of masking standards and different things according to the CDC were allowed under different EUAs. And what happened was in China at the start of the pandemic, there were 8,000 factories manufacturing masks. Within two or three months, that number shot up to 38,000. 30,000 extra factories suddenly manufacturing these things with a poor understanding of the actual mechanism, both from a physical perspective and from a regulatory perspective. And the number of literally counterfeit documents I was seeing describing these high quality masks was ridiculous. People were registering their mask with the FDA, claiming that it was FDA approved. FDA approved isn't even a thing with masks. That's only for class three medical devices or drugs, generally it would be cleared for class two and you wouldn't even get that for a mask. Basically their terminology was wrong. They were registering it as like an anesthesiology mask, which only covers the nose. There were so many different red flags and yet hospitals were desperate. They were just ordering these things that, you know what, if you wear one of those, the level of effectiveness was very dubious. Yeah. It was like a wild west. Yeah, no, I mean, it was it was crazy. Yeah, I mean, just like not knowing. And I just remember, again, I was like paying a lot of it. I just thought it was, you know, we're, this is just fascinating. You know, and again, it sounds kind of dark, but I mean, this is like absolutely fascinating. This is a once in a lifetime historical event and just, you know, how it all unfolded. It was, it was, it was like a movie. Um, can I ask you some Fauci questions? <laughs> So you can, but of all the If you don't want to answer, well, you just say pass. <laughs> it's not quite that. So okay. uh, quick background on me before you ask that. Okay. I grew up in a house where at the dinner table, we would discuss Scientific American rather than the news. Okay. The news never played on a TV in my house, and we didn't get the newspaper. I pretty much throughout my entire adult life, have gotten all of my news through medical journals and science news sources. I have never heard Fauci speak other than in a couple of clips that people have sent me. I have never used him as an information source because I get it from the primary sources. The only thing I've ever heard about Fauci is when people send me, oh, Fauci said such and such, what do you think? That's my entire exposure to him. Okay. All right, so I'm going to throw some <laughs> It's so funny that, like, I have to, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's like a touchy issue. And that's kind of what I was curious. And it seemed like at the beginning when, you know, he was kind of the guy chosen to be the 
you know, I don't know even exactly what he, I mean, it, he, he makes Most decisions, person. he, you know, um, communicates, but it seemed like it was like pretty clear he was the guy for the job. You know what I mean? It was like, yeah. everyone was just like, yeah, this is the guy. Right. And, you know, and we start to learn a little bit more about his background. You know, there's some controversy, you know, some people with like the HIV and I don't fully understand that. Um, but yeah, I guess you, know, you kind of talked about that, but you know, why, why was he just the guy for the job? Like, or am I wrong that it just seemed like that was the consensus? I mean, at the time. So again, this is, this borders on the whole political structure that I'm not very well versed in. So as I understand it, the role that he held at the start of the pandemic was in charge of scientific communication with regards to diseases, but mm -hmm. I'm actually not even entirely sure from like, it's clear that, yeah, he seemed to be the guy to talk about pandemic science and he became the de facto spokesperson when trying to convey any sort of pandemic related scientific information, why he was the one for the job. It's at whatever position he, I think now his official position is like chief scientific advisor to the president or something like that, or yeah. medical advisor. I think he was in a slightly different role in 2020. If anyone else knows, then by all means, but. Uh, I, I like to see what some of these folks are going to say. He's <laughs> like the head orc of Middle Earth. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah. But, so, I mean, and again, and, and, but just like in your opinion, like with where we're at, you know, and just the, how far everything has gotten politicized and, Again, whether it's deserved or not, do you think that it would be time for, you know, to put in a new head coach, even though he's a good coach, but the football team isn't, you know, performing like it, you know, would it be beneficial? Like, like even if it changed 5% of people's mind, just to hear the same thing from someone else where he doesn't have this years of baggage, like, is there someone else that could come in where people would maybe be more trusting again, even if it's just a fallacy. I think they should have just brought in Bill Nye. <laughs> nah, yeah. You're, kind of, you're like a young, you're like a young Bill Nye. I was thinking that at the beginning. <laughs> you know, I'll take it. I I would love to be a a Bill Nye equivalent, but he's the sort of person who you know. A lot of people just grew up watching him, trusting him. He's someone who's clearly not a medical professional, but a sciencey person, and. I think one of the problems is that from the beginning of the pandemic, we were in this situation where what used to be esoteric medical jargon knowledge suddenly became relevant to the day-to-day -day lives of the majority of the globe. And when you had the scientists communicating about it, the ones who knew the most were often the worst communicators because, I mean, it's a pretty well-known effect where the deeper you are within a field, the harder it is for you to typically communicate about it to someone who knows none of the base uh, facts required. It's usually those who have only progressed a little bit along who are able to share their journey and understand what it was like to know nothing about it and then properly convey it to yeah. those who are where they used to be. And you add that to the fact that it's like something I get a lot of flack for is I will almost never speak in absolutes. I will never say this is proven to do that. This guarantees this a hundred percent that mm -hmm. no, when it comes to science, it's all probabilities. The odds of my remaining in this chair and not teleporting into the air right now 
are mm. very, very high, but it's not 100%. Not it's never 100%. So you get the scientists talking and they say, yeah, this is likely, this is possible, this is probable. And then you have the science denier, like the, the people who think they know a lot are talking in these absolutes that engender trust. People say, oh, that person was uncertain. That person was certain. I'm going to trust the certain person when that's likely the guy suffering from the Dunning-Kruger effect where he that's thinks he knows more than he does. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about what's the name of that? Again? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I'm kind of getting back to that critical thinking deficit that we, we kind of have around here. You know, I mean, that is, you know, I almost, I'm not a scientist, but, you know, it's just something I, I'm fascinated by, you know, and I always have, well, not always have been, but, um, you know, it is my like current understanding that like I'm I'm someone who's extremely against ideology of any kind. Like that's the only ideology I have is being against ideology, which may be this weird conundrum that's gonna blow up the world, you know, paradox. But you know, it just seems like science is literally the purest form, at least that we have now, of deciphering what is true and what is not. And science gets it wrong quite a bit, right? So it's easy for people to say in science, like they don't know, like, look, they were wrong here, 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 here. And, you know, and they use that as proof, right? But the only, but like at the end of the day, the only science, you know, only thing that could really combat science, right, is like better science. And, you know, like I could go on a gut feeling and be like, Sounds like bullshit. And then be right, you know, like 50% of the time, like, yes, no. I'm like, hey, I was smarter than the science. It'd be like, it'd be being like, you know, I don't believe in all this string theory nonsense. And then it gets disproven 15 years later. I'm like, I told you, I, I knew it was bullshit. Um, you know, so it's like really easy for that fallacy to come. Now, just real quick, and I'm seeing a lot of these comments, you know, people like, we're like, okay, are these studies by? And of course, like, like, do you, like, what can you say about bias in the scientific community? Um, you know, for example, like in my community, mental health, there's these narratives that form that like, where it's like controversial get challenged, just like in history, right? If like one scientist says, goes against the, you know, they get ostracized and not taken seriously. Like what bias exists in that community? So it a lot, right? <laughs> it's okay. Uh, I will address both points. First, when it comes yeah. to the whole ideology thing, I, I'm very in agreement with you. I hate most ideologies in the sense that anytime someone is lumping themselves into a category of belief where unrelated beliefs are affecting each other, I have a massive problem with that. Like the whole bipartisan political system wherein you've got these various positions that have gotten lumped on one side or the other where the two really have nothing to do with each other but because this is what my party thinks this is what i'm likely to believe it bugs me to no end because i think everything should just be evaluated based on data and logic and then independent of each other thing but when it comes to the question about bias in the scientific community it is a very big problem but only in certain areas so if anyone is really interested in the flaws within the current scientific system, this book is phenomenal. Uh, science fictions, it goes into the incentive structures that are in place in academia 
some of the problems with them, how it used to be a lot worse, and how it could potentially be a lot better. So I will be the first one to say that, yes, there are a lot of problems within this system. It is not perfect. If you've heard the term perish or public or publish or perish, when you're an academic, all of your career progression is based on your publishing papers and those papers being in prestigious journals and those papers being cited by other papers in prestigious journals. And it's more to do that than it is to even do good science. That being said, we also have a process called peer review wherein other scientists and experts in the field, if I publish a paper, in order for it to get published, first it has to be reviewed by people who I don't know who they are. They're just independently evaluating it and saying, are all of the methods and results here coherent? Is this actually good science? If so, we will let it pass. And then even then, you have other experts within the field looking at, analyzing, figuring out, is this something that actually makes sense from a scientific perspective. If not, it'll get pulled pretty quickly. So there have been many, many studies that get published and then there are mistakes found that then they get retracted. There are many studies that probably should be retracted and haven't been yet because the system is not perfect. But in general, the overall system is fairly well self-correcting. And in terms of the bias, it's generally, it's a if you talk about any sort of bias towards, I don't know, talking about the vaccines being safer than they are, 99% of all scientists who have worked on this problem have absolutely no gain from saying that the vaccines work. It's like the number of people who say, oh, I'm a paid actor talking about these things. I do not get a dime to talk yeah. about vaccines. I just think that it's a good way to save lives and keep people healthy. That's kind of my thought, and that's what I tell some of the folks who are, you know, like very like skeptical of science. Like, let's look at the incentive structure, because like for a scientist, right? Like, yeah, if you publish more papers, you know, you get you know more cred and your career and you know all that good stuff. However, though, if you you know if you f up and you you know you're sloppy and um, you know that could you know unscrupulous that could ruin your career and your reputation you know it's all about like reputation and then you know we could go back and see where some you know like all these studies that get paid for you know like in my addiction world or like the studies paid by big farm you know by um <clears throat> sackler fan you know like for yep. oxycodone it's like how could you know it's like yeah there's some clear incentives where they're getting paid but money, you also but have to declare your funding sources like yes it's true that when you have a study about the impact of sugar on the body paid for by a sugar manufacturer, then look at this with a grain of salt. It doesn't mean that the results are useless. It just means you got to go over it with a much more critical eye than otherwise. Yeah. It's just like, yeah, the incentive, because I, I really think for like a scientist, the incentive is to get it right. It's like, you know, who will never publish not another paper. <laughs> like Andrew Wakefield will never publish in another academic journal. He is the one... Uh, he is the one who first published a case series back in, I believe it was the early 90s, the saying vaccine. that vaccines cause autism. Yeah, yeah. And when you look at what actually happened there, the way that he did that study was wrong in every single respect. Mm -hmm. Like it was a case series of 10 people who, rather than look at them and look at the connection, he, he recruited people who were already experiencing autism symptoms whether or not they got the vaccine before or after, it was 
so many, he basically was recruited by a lawyer who had been hired to create a lawsuit against the vaccine companies. And the lawyer needed a scientist to partner with him who would be willing to look for a connection Mm -hmm. and basically manufacture it. And then when they initially didn't find it, they had to go to another lab where the guy would essentially fabricate some of the data to make it look like there was a connection. There were so many different levels there wherein it was entirely scientific fraud and he was sued and literally he will never publish in another like academic mm-hmm. journal ever. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's not, I mean, I don't... of course, unfortunately he's probably making a lot of money by like speaking. <laughs> they <are> speaking. <laughs> oh man. So yeah, that kind of brings me into a couple questions. Um, so like, we know that there's this potential for bias we know that science makes mistakes, that there are maybe some incentive structures that aren't ideal. Um, so how does someone like me, a layperson, you know, decipher or do I just, you know, do I just, who do I listen? I just have to decide who I listen to. I'm like, you know, I, you're one of those people, but like how, you know, study comes out, looks credible, gets redacted. Seems like that's happening a lot, right, with people on the other side you know, who are picking their data and say, oh, here's one study that shows myocarditis. But then it gets pulled, but then that never gets corrected, but yeah. that still gets cited. Like, how is a lay person who doesn't know decide? It's unfortunately more difficult than you would like to think. So I think well, there's, I a, figured out. <laughs> there's a lot of systemic issues there that could do with some fixing. So the way that theoretically it should work is that when it comes to something like epidemiology, virology, public health, there's academia. And then what should happen is you've got a bunch of different papers published on different aspects of something like a virus. When there's enough evidence building up behind some particular issue, you then have a committee of experts in that field evaluate the availability of the current state of the evidence. And that gets used to create guidelines from organizations like the CDC or the uh, American Heart Association or these large bodies of experts that are involved in putting out standards and guidelines around these health-related topics that are essentially distillations of the available science at a wide scale where they've done systematic reviews and meta-analyses and gotten rid of those outlier studies that don't actually show the proper things because of whatever outlier, bad methodology, whatever. But because of the aggregate data being evaluated by experts that are all keeping each other in line, that is theoretically how the system works. And then the layperson doesn't have to look at the study themselves. They can just say, well, this is the standard guideline and we can follow it. Unfortunately, that system sometimes breaks down. The example at hand is in the context of an evolving pandemic where the cycle is so fast, there mm-hmm. isn't time for that type of process to happen. Mm-hmm. We've even seen how the majority of useful information these days is coming out of preprint servers where a group of researchers gets data and they put it up on a server that you can read it before it's been peer reviewed. And that's a good thing because sometimes it's very relevant. It's like, if you have a study that shows that, Oh, 
monoclonal antibodies don't work against the Omicron variant for these types of monoclonals. You want people to know that. You want to share that data ASAP. But you also want to make sure that it still does get peer-reviewed. And it's this weird yeah. situation where a journalist sees a preprint, writes an article about it. They themselves have no good ability to evaluate the uh, veracity of that study. And then suddenly a headline appears and people only read the headline or the basic article and just, it, it, misinformation propagates. And we don't have in place any system that is good at handling that. I think one of the ways that people have resorted to now is they find an expert that they trust who is paying attention to the very uh, fast information cycle. And they say, oh, I will see what this person says about this new piece of data. That's and why I got you. <laughs> happy to help. Unfortunately, then you have people who their information source is one who is not always so trusted. One thing that I've actually noticed over the course of the pandemic is there are people who I actually really, really respect from a scientific chops perspective. Yeah. who, based on certain political ideologies, have sort of skewed lenses when it comes to data around COVID. And it's fascinating to look at. Like someone who is a really intelligent scientist who just looks at everything through a lens that just comes, it produces some weird outcomes. And Well, there's a moral. Wouldn't you say there's like a moral component to it? Two or maybe like you like a second. I wouldn't quite say moral because everyone is the hero of their own story, and most of these people really they they care for other people's health. They want everyone to be as healthy as possible. And one thing that has been really frustrating to me is that the health and wellness community is one of the biggest sources of people who are against vaccines there is this it's like kind of the left you know like on the left side of things those are our yeah but it's through this sort of belief that oh i am healthy i will support my body's own immune system i will not rely on this uh jab the problem there is well first the whole fundamental misunderstanding of how vaccines work with literally just helping your immune system fight off a virus yeah. getting a head start but because a lot of people who ended up in the health and wellness community are folks who were in some way failed by Western medicine, by the pharmaceutical industry. They were mistreated. They were not properly diagnosed. They had to sort of figure things out themselves a little bit. And they, it created this environment of distrust where, in unfortunately, many times, for good reason, there were things that were not done properly. People were not well like diagnosed were not properly handled and then sort of had to take their health into their own hands. And now they've got this mentality that I need to always take my health into my own hands and I will never trust big pharma. And I will not evaluate each new piece of data in and of itself. Instead, I will let my past experiences and therefore uh, institutional biases influence my thinking around this. Mm -hmm. And that's what's led towards this weird anti-vax health related community. So someone like, Dr. Robert Malone, one of your favorites, um, through watching your videos. <laughs> okay, so let's say, take away all the recent kerfuffles that he's done. Would this be someone, like if you went back some decades or before he went on the show, would this be someone that you could reasonably trust based on their credentials? 
Like, is he actually who he says? Yeah, I'm one of, you know, like people say, he's one of the guys who helped invent the mRNA. Sort of. So on this scale of things, he is someone who is more credentialed than most in the space. And that's what makes him even more dangerous. Because first, when it comes to him being the inventor of mRNA vaccines, he is one of hundreds of scientists who worked on mRNA technology over the course of the last four decades. Mm -hmm. That's true. He published two papers in 1989 on mRNA tech that those were one step along the road towards producing mRNA vaccines. Does that make him the inventor? No. Would that qualify him as someone who would have a reasonable ability to understand the science regarding mRNA? Yeah, theoretically. Unfortunately, there seems to be other reasons why his belief structure has very much skewed his current understanding and view of the data as it stands. There always seems to be like someone willing with the credentials to take this fringe, maybe it's as they get a little older, you know, like that they're willing to take this fringe position and then it is more dangerous when they're actually credentialed and it gives more fuel to the fire of misinformation. Yeah. Every doctor that comes out and says, oh, I don't trust the vaccine. People are used to trusting doctors, especially if it's their doctor. Even if doctor does not mean expert in virology, it still is something. Yeah. Yeah. Who was the doctor? He was like, like a lot of people are citing, but he was like a doctor of education. <laughs> you know who I'm talking about? Doctor of education. I mean, Robert yeah, he was like this guy we said, you know, people are like, the, you know, he was one of the real loud voices of anti-vax and, you know, people are like, oh, doctor. But he was like, he turned out to be like a doctor of education. Oh, yeah. There, there was the guy who like got up and spoke at that uh, yeah. <laughs> what was that hearing. And he's like, oh, Dr. So-and-so, Oxford. And it was like he lived in Oxford, the UK. He didn't go to Oxford. And he wasn't. Yeah, actually... Oh, he was like Oxford. <laughs> yeah, and he exactly. <laughs> he had like a PhD in like philosophy. Or something. Here's an interesting thing. And I want to acknowledge everyone who's here and asking you know, questions. And there's some really entertaining fights been going on this whole time. Oh, I'm you. sure. I've been side eyeing. But, you know, so a couple of the things, you know, contrary opinions, interesting. And someone said, like, he's calling the creator of mRNA dangerous and wrong. But it was interesting because you said that he was one of hundreds. Now, if we were to interview the 99 others, maybe there's some other dissenters, right? So we're focusing on this one. But, you know, he's not really involved. You know, so this is like what my logic was. He's not really involved as much anymore. This was something that was early on. And probably the other 99 of these folks would, uh, you know, dissent from his, you know, fringe opinion. And getting back to that science thing where it's like, I guess where I'm at a point where I'm like, I know that there's bias in science. I know that articles get retracted. I know, but like, and I know that a lot of times the majority, the scientific consensus, we are going to go, we're going to look back and know that it's wrong. However, I like to think kind of in like, probabilities and in bets right like it's probably the safest problem you know the safest probability to go with this the mainstream scientific consensus to bet on that i'm going to win sometimes i'm going to lose sometimes but it's kind of like the casino house at the end of the day that's probably the way to go even though you're going to be wrong but when it is wrong then it's easy for everyone to say look at that yeah do you watch it's always sunny in philadelphia um uh, i have seen it i don't watch it regularly just my old cute. roommate in college used to watch every episode like out loud in my apartment so there's this like brilliant uh episode and there's a brilliant scene within an episode right where it's like they like you know how they always like get into these camps and then they like 
battle each other on something, right? This one was like over climate change. And it was like Dee and Dennis were on the side of science, but Mac and Charlie were against science. So they were like having these debates and like in this like brilliant segment, like Mac and Charlie, they do this like presentation, <laughs> like a, you know, a billboard, whatever. And they're like going through and they make this like, case for why science and they go back and they're like we used the most brilliant scientific minds thought that the earth or the sun revolved around the earth and they like went through all of these like like the most brilliant people you know were wrong you know so how and they kind of like shut them up they're like uh, I, it was kind of like even after that i'm like oh, that's kind of a good point right <laughs> it's like it, that is uh, a really good point funny. and it's something that we have to be careful about it. So there's another great book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions that creates this whole framework for scientific paradigms and paradigm shifts and how you get this groundswell of evidence that leads towards a paradigm shift. Sometimes it's this single discovery. Oftentimes it's some development of instrumentation that allows for measuring things in a way that was never able to be measured before that allows for proving something else wrong. But there is very often, whenever you get a paradigm shift, there is a point in time at which the scientific consensus is wrong. And that's something we absolutely have to accept. And at right now, as we stand, there are many things that the scientific consensus is pretty wrong about, especially in the health world where the tools that we have to diagnose the human body and learn things about the human body are progressing so rapidly that there's so many areas in which our prior understanding of health is really very outdated. Like even how we read a cholesterol panel is often not done very well by most doctors based on the latest evidence as compared to the actual guidelines. Like there, there's a bit of an economy there right now, but there are so many areas in which, yeah, there are some emerging signs where the latest research points in a different direction from the guidelines. And there's always that first study, which is the lone mm -hmm. dissenter, and yeah. then that goes up behind it. So the question then is, when you have a study that is a lone dissenter, how was that study done? Can you spot a methodological flaw in that study? If yes, then by all means discount it. If no, then say, okay, Let's consider this. Yeah, you know, and I think there is something to be said about that because, like, you see this in the news all the time in a magazine and a newspaper. It's like new study shows that butter is good for you, you know, or like, and, it, and then it's just like this one dissenting study. And then maybe like it builds steam and then more evidence builds. And then, you know, but it's like, I think we're so quick to be like, and I think just as humans, we're drawn towards this in so many different facets of like the consensus is wrong, you know, like this, every, it's like, you know, the headline, everything you knew about this was yeah. wrong. The headline that I hate the most, and I wish we could just ban is that seller and so doesn't want you to know about it. Like this is <laughs> the, the one trick for losing belly fat that doctors don't want uh, you to know about. Like, oh yeah. That if this actually worked, that every doctor on the planet would be telling you that because yeah, if it were that easy, <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's always like for like fake products and stuff. It's like it, I mean, it works, you know. They why do, do you think they don't want you to know about it? 
if you can't come up with a reason, then that's probably an inaccurate headline. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting how many psychological fallacies are just being caricaturized in this. I'm being asked to show this book again. Oh, okay. <laughs> are you are you getting paid by the author or the publisher? Oh yeah, company? totally. Uh, See, Thomas, this is why we don't trust. This is why we don't trust scientists. Like, what's your incentive for promoting this book? <laughs> the publisher. Oh yeah, company? totally. Uh, See, Thomas, this is why we don't trust. This is why we don't trust scientists. Like, what's your incentive for promoting this book? <laughs> Which brings me. I'm loving this, by the way. <laughs> like, oh yeah, same. Like, I, I could pick your brain for hours. Okay, so pharma companies. Yes. Okay, so and, you know a lot of people were in here, and I could like I could totally see what they're saying, right? It's like the pharma companies, like five that had these record years, you know, and that it's like an easy way to think like of course they're saying it's going to work look how much money and it's so easy to get into that conspiratorial route for these dark places that we don't know and we could fill in the blanks and like is it possible that this company could be making money hand over fist but it's it also works and these two things could exist and maybe maybe there's some questionable ethics whatever but these two things could exist simultaneously you know what works better for making money? Selling a product that does what you say it does really effectively, mm. as opposed to something that you're lying about that you will end up getting sued later and getting into a lot of trouble. Now, sure, there are instances wherein a pharma company will put something out, they'll make a lot of money off of it, they'll later have to pay some sort of reparations that are way lower than the amounts they made. That's yeah. certainly true. But Here's the thing. It's not just the pharma companies. It's They're not the only ones involved here. Sure, they're the ones who are doing the development, running the trials. But there are thousands of independent eyes evaluating this data, looking at what are the outcomes? Was this done properly? Are there any discrepancies? And here's something that people don't seem to think about much. The government is often lumped in to this whole, oh, they've got these weird, perverse incentives. If you look at the research around how much money the pandemic has cost from a governmental perspective, like the impact on our GDP, on our economy as a whole, the billions of dollars spent on the vaccines is a tiny drop in the bucket compared to what it has cost for the rest of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So from a purely monetary perspective, the motivation, the financial incentive for the government is to end the pandemic as soon as possible. However, they can do that. It's it's not about saving lives. I mean, you can say it's about saving lives, but even just the economics of it, if they end the pandemic, they can reopen, they can get people back to work. The GDP goes up, like the people make more money. So yeah, their incentive is to get whatever vaccine works best on the market ASAP. So it's kind of like incentives are aligned. Yeah. They, in, the, in, this, in this case. In this case, from the government's perspective, end the pandemic, make more money. Yeah, and the pharmacy. Also case. the public good, but just the, the economics of it makes sense. So, you know, the you know, there's a narrative, the quote, heroes of this, you know, pandemic, you know, as far as saving lives have been these private pharma companies that have been pretty, um, 
it's uh, pretty trendy to crap all over and probably for good. I mean, for a lot of good reasons, a lot of very valid criticisms of the pharma company and probably price gouging and not, you know, unscrupulous, whatever. But in this case, right, it's kind of like you see some people kind of like biting their tongues a little bit or like holding their nose that like these incredible vaccines were all produced by private industry. And so it gets a little political there. I don't think really anyone loves the pharma companies that much right or left. I don't think anyone's like, but it, I, don't, I, think pharma. I found that interesting, you know, that that's what's of, funny is Moderna is barely even a big pharma company. They're really new. They're basically a company that is built up around mRNA technology in like the last 10 years. They're really an incumbent. And the only reason that they're able to do what they did was because of all the governmental support around the finances of the vaccine. And sure, now they're worth billions of dollars, but they've got like the most effective vaccine on the market. Why and didn't we they, invest like, in them right away? Or maybe you did. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, fancy Manhattan apartment years. Oh, oh yeah, you know, definitely super. Fa- you should see the size of my window that looks into like a brick wall. Yeah, that hey, those shoe boxes, you know, mm-hmm. probably three cents. <laughs> it's great. That's funny. Um, but okay, so you know, for like a little bit of like a historical perspective, this is just kind of another area of interest. But like, you know, it used to be that. It was like the government, there's a lot more government trust right before like Vietnam. And, you know, we had, you know, government did these like amazing things. Like, you know, I guess it's questionable, you know, but like the Manhattan Project, right? When like all these things were brought together and it was like from the government, right? And most people have compared this vaccine, you know, push to like the Manhattan Project, but it was all done by private industry. Like, how do we reconcile that? Is that, is this really, is this the better way to go? Or like, why have we moved away from this? Well, when it comes to innovation by government versus private industry, if there are several reasons why the government is not good at innovation. The biggest one is if you look at all the mandated uh, public salaries of government employees and compare that to the salaries paid by high-tech companies, and then you think about the people graduating from Harvard and MIT and coming out as the top of their fields, you think they're going to go into the government job? <laughs> like, those, those are not the ones who typically end up there. Like, sure, you do get some very smart people working in government, but the role of government in the sciences right now is the funder. The NIH funds so much of the research that goes on in academia, and that's what happens. What if you want non-industry research, it happens in the universities and it gets funded by the government. The government itself doesn't do much in the way of independent research. They don't have scientists on staff aside from like you know, certain military things. But for the most part, it's always been that way. Well, um, like like with NASA, what is the deal with NASA then? You know, it's like at one point, you know, now it's like they're probably going to SpaceX or whatever. But I mean, NASA has always been, and then. Manhattan Project, you know, that were like they have been able to put this together. Yeah, Maybe they, they were just the ones funding it, but well, that's the thing. It's a budgetary issue. It's like what money is being thrown around where for what tasks. So you do get these projects wherein 
a couple billion dollars is allocated for XYZ, and then they hire people to get that done. But the amount of time it takes to do that is often a lot. And just these days, especially in a very high-tech world, industry is able to iterate so much faster than any type of government entity. Are you, you taking, uh, are you taking a stance against communism live? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, it's going to come and get me. But in general, we're just seeing, like, the reason why SpaceX has taken a lot of NASA's jobs away <laughs> is SpaceX can rapidly iterate in a way where they can produce a rocket for a tiny fraction of the cost. And that's actually another uh, related issue. Because industry is limited by the economics, they are forced to do things in the most efficient way possible, both in terms of time and in terms of money. The government incentive structure is not that. They, their money just sort of appears. The people involved in spending it are not the ones who are liable for it. They just like get a grant. It's, it's such a large separation between those two that there are so many inefficiencies. Anyone who's ever been to a DMV... Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because you hear like people on you know, the other side of the argument, like a Noam Chomsky or something, who say, "Okay, well, when you look at some of the, you know, earliest parts, you know, of like the technologies that, like the the fundamental technologies of like a computer chip or something, you know, don't quote me on this exactly, but like those were started from like you know, because there sometimes there isn't the financial structure there." Right. And then so the industry can't, you know, they're like, there's no incentive. So and I remember Neil deGrasse Tyson one time had talked about that, where it's like Spain, you know, like there was no incentive for Columbus or these explorers to go. But then, you know, Spain funded that. Therefore, then there became yeah. an incentive once the technology was there. Something I'm bastardizing. So you bring up a very good point, which is the limitation of industry is based on short time horizons. So when it comes to a public company, they need to have a good quarterly report. They need to show early results. You don't get these days many blue sky research projects that are super long-term. We're going to try to work on the fundamental problems in the universe. Like A lot of the best technologies we have right now are from Bell Labs, which was this amazing research center that, yeah, it was funded by industry, predominantly, I believe, but what their, their directive was essentially work on hard problems. And amazing things came out of it, but it's like at the end of a 20-year research project, they finally make a breakthrough. Whereas these days, a 20-year research project, you're not going to get in most industry-based areas because that's not going to increase the value for the investors or the shareholders. So instead, what you have is either it happens in academia where their incentive is to publish, which means as long as they can keep updating people about their breakthroughs along the way, it doesn't have to be practical. Oftentimes, I get frustrated by how many things that could turn into a really cool product just end up in some paper and never get used because they have such a disconnect. But you do get some companies like uh, Google has quite a bit of money and resources put at just open-ended projects for 
going for the long term. Yeah, like creating an artificial human. You know, it's like, or it's like they, you know, for them, they have just so many gobs of cash. They're like, all right, like, let's, yeah, like we could invest in these long term and they may not go anywhere, but, you know, who cares? Whereas, you know, that's kind of been the role of like government for some of these things where there may not be, you know, maybe risky, right? It may be too risky for a private company to do. And then, you know, and it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, there's a narrative out there that a lot of these pharma companies do receive government grant, you know, despite making all this money, they receive government grants, you know, for, let's say, working on projects that are like essential, but just not profitable to incentivize them to do certain types of research or work on, you know, these yeah. projects that aren't really money making, like, like a certain antibiotics, I believe, where it's like, there's not a lot of money in it, but they're like super essential. So there's grants. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, you're you're absolutely right. There definitely are certain projects wherein the financial incentives in industry are not enough and they can get government grants to supplement. It's like if you're talking about a expensive treatment for an extremely rare disease, if there's not enough people who have this disease to pay for it, um, like if it succeeds then the incentive of the pharma company to work on a cure is very low. So oftentimes that will be funded by the government or even sometimes with vaccines, because for many viruses, it's very unclear if a given vaccine candidate will have any degree of success. Like we're, we've been working and trying to find a good vaccine for HIV for a long time and have not really made great progress because it's just such an insidious virus. But if you just keep spending millions of dollars to run these trials and it doesn't go anywhere, that's not a good incentive for the pharma company to keep working on it. But at the same time, from a societal perspective, we really want that to happen. But because the best experts in the field are not working for the government, they're working for the pharma company, then there is this sort of symbiotic relationship where the government says, look, we will help fund these things that because it is a health problem that we want solved for the greater good you guys have the capability to devote the best resources to solving it and if you succeed then yeah there's gonna be some added financial incentive but it's not necessarily a bad thing that the government is helping fund areas that are very important health issues well and i'm just someone who's like just again going back to some of like ideologies and you know where, where people are just there's so much attraction to the extreme where it's like F the government, you know, libertarian. And then there's like, it's, you know, so many voices even on here, you know, you know, F private industry, it should all be for the people and government take the means of production where it's like, it's pretty clear that like, and this is a good example where it's like, they're like, it would appear to me that the answer to a lot of life's issues here would be like a healthy symbiotic relationship because there, I think there's health unhealthy government and unhealthy government. There's healthy industry and unhealthy industry and there's pros and cons of both. So it's like, how do we rid the cons in each side and advance the pros and then have this symbiotic relationship? So you can have these amazing innovations and, and quality of life for everyone goes up, but that's just, that's just me. I don't know. I mean, that's an ideal world if we could get rid of any sort of, you know, extraneous greed and misincentives. But there's there's a lot of inefficiencies in the system. That doesn't mean that the entire system is fully corrupt. And yeah, and I think 
it, this kind of gets back to another psychological fallacy. Maybe you would, there's like, a, maybe there's a name for this that I, I don't know, but I see this happening because it's partially with the vaccines. I see this too when people criticize either on one end or the other that are like, it's really like, like extreme, but I don't know, the, like, I call it the shack phenomenon, not Shaquille O'Neal, but like a shack. And okay. it's like, it's like you have a, it's like you have a choice between living in a shack and living in a house, right? And like the house isn't perfect. So the, so I could go into any house and look around, especially my house from like the 1890s or something and be like, oh, look at that, the drywall, that shit, the electric needs updating. And I could just make this like beautiful case for how this house is shit, even though it's like maybe these minor things, but then it's like, yeah, but what about the shack? And it's like, well, don't look at the shack, you know, and they point, you know, it's like this basis of comparison. It's like, well, it doesn't matter as much about the house, but it's let's fix the house because otherwise we're living in the shack, right? So like, like, like with the vaccines that are like, and unfortunately this doesn't even apply that much because the vaccines, I just, there's, in my opinion, so it's just like such a miracle how effective and how safe they are. But they'd be like, well, look at that myocarditis over there. Oh, there's a little bit, there's a speck of dust, but it's like, well, look at COVID. That's the shack. You know, like that's the other option. I mean, it's almost like hedonic adaptation, wherein you get used to a new set point of quality of life, and then suddenly you're just as likely to look for the holes in it and be pessimistic about it as for anyone else. Like the guy who goes from a solitary confinement into a larger jail cell. You know, he's suddenly in a much larger cell, but he's just as unhappy about the worse, like, smelly corner as he was when he was all alone. And that, that was like a particular study that was done. But in general, people have a set point of happiness that they adjust to, and then all problems come from there. Well, it's like, it's, it's the, you know, in psychology, there's the famous study where it's like you give... I don't know, they're giving a monkey, I don't know, it was like celery or something. And you like, they love the celery, but then they started giving the other monkey grapes and then you give them the yeah. celery and you toss it and be like, F you, I want, I want <laughs> the grapes. And I, I think that is like, and again, there's so many criticisms that could be made of our society and just growing inequality. And, you know, it's like, those are the electric things that we need to fix. But then it's just like this this draw towards like tear down the system where it's like, okay, well, let's look at some of the measures of how we were doing compared to many other countries. And, you know, it's like life is, you know, there's a lot wrong with it, but you know, we, we always have to compare before we tear down everything compared to what, what's our alternative. I mean, look at now compared to March of 2020, like this is sure we've got a wave, but the reason why, people aren't dying as much is because we have vaccines. We have better treatments. We have more knowledge. Science has worked. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. We're getting into the deep philosophy. One thing I wanted to loop back into. So science, right. And that's, I kind of jokingly wanted to title this interview with the science, right. It's the best thing I could come up with this because you are the science. Um, You're a representative, you're an ambassador of the science. I would love to be an anthropomorphization of the abstract concept of science. <laughs> well, we could, you could make like a cartoon of you. It's like, like I kind of have a, I have a cartoon, a follower made of me from my little picture here. Um, but, uh, okay. So YouTube, 
right? Yes. Freedom of speech. I mean, you kind of know where I'm getting at with this, right? So, you know, they, right, and I don't know where I land on this, right, because, you know, in, in Facebook now they have all this pressure. I'm sure that's, like, why they're doing this, right, to take down misinformation. Mm-hmm. Yet there have been times where they have taken down misinformation. Maybe it's just the broken clock is right twice a day. But they have taken down information that later is shown to be true. Yeah. Like, how do you, how do, you know, what are the ethics or what is your opinion on how we deal with, do we just take down what we, that is not the immediate consensus? Do we allow the debate to happen? Can they, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So this is going to be a multi-part answer. And it's something that I've struggled with for a long time because it almost feels like there is no perfect solution. The issue is we are all trained to love freedom of speech. Everyone should have the right to expression. We shouldn't be silencing anyone. And it's true. That is ideal. We should be able to have people say what they want. The problem is when what people say leads to negative health outcomes, people dying, suddenly it gets into a questionable moral territory for the same reason why you can't have someone who is literally inciting violence against other people and that pretty much everyone agrees, okay, you could take that down when you're trying to get people to kill other people. When you're talking about spreading health misinformation that could lead towards people dying, suddenly you might put that in the category of something that should not be up. But then you get into, like, if you had a perfect arbitrator and you could say, this unbiased, perfect, all-knowing system can tell whenever there is something that is negative health misinformation that could lead towards people being unhealthy or dying, then I would say in an ideal world, you should be able to trigger that and have it eliminate health misinformation. Unfortunately, that is not the case. And who is the arbiter of information? And the problem is something like the Joe Rogan podcast is a platform that reaches so many people. And you could say, oh, it doesn't matter if he brings someone on to say a negative set of facts about vaccines, as long as he is then able to bring someone on to counter it. The issue is, it's not like everyone is being exposed to both at the same time, yeah. where they can see both sides. And even if they can see both sides, confirmation bias means that people who already have a particular set of beliefs are going to latch on to what they like more, and they're not really properly trained to debate it or interpret a debate. And even then, a debate is not a good scientific discourse because that's more about the lexical tricks and tactics to make yourself sound smarter rather than an actual independent evaluation of the data. So, (laughs) yeah, people often ask me, like, well, I go and debate some anti-vaxxer, and well, that would be a lot of fun. It, that's not actually the best medium for this to happen in. Instead, it should be, shall I publish something where I lay out my thought processes and cite my sources, and then you could try a takedown, and we'll have this back and forth that is open and public, and you can have the discourse happen that way. That's ideal, but most people aren't going to pay attention to that because that's for us nerds. So then, okay, so the counter then was, why does it matter then? Right. Like, so, so, so let's take away just him bringing on Malone, who's, 
you know, clearly spreading misinformation and unfortunately to millions of people. And I, you know, I'd be willing to bet that um, there, there will be a certain amount of people that may die, like not even hyperbole that may die yeah. because of that. Pot. Like it wouldn't surprise me if it was one person, if it was a thousand people that will die or something bad will happen, whether it's them not getting vaccines or like people will die because yeah. of that. For me, it would be interesting and, you know, to see someone like you versus Malone, like I like, I like a good fight, you know, a good boxing match, like Visha Malone, Saturday night pay-per-view. I'm in. I'm totally in. Now, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong in my thinking here, but, you know, kind of like what you're saying, there's like the rule of thirds may apply here, right? So we bring on you, we bring on Malone, right? One third of the people, I'm just making a number, one third of the people already agree with you. One third already agree with them, but maybe there is this one third, and it's probably less than that. It's like this small, like it's like the undecided, right? That may actually benefit from a debate like that and go in one direction or the other. What do you think? Any debate is generally for the audience rather than the people debating. And that's often why it's when I do a live and I have people coming in and like talking conspiracy theories and lots of like standard anti-vax stuff. I'm generally totally okay with addressing it as long as people are going to be polite and actually talk about reasons and sources and aren't just going to be yelling in all caps. Because while my odds of convincing that person are not particularly high, there's Oftentimes, the people who wouldn't be at the point of saying that, but are interested in hearing the response, and maybe they're the ones who are going to get swayed. And there's absolutely value in having that type of rational discourse where you get to take the methodological... Methodological? Take... <laughs> it's actually methodological. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> take a proper approach and address concerns and that's often what i try to do with my videos it's like i will uh, take something and try to break it down and say this is where i came from these this is the actual data let's let's try and address it rather than just say oh you're an idiot we're going to use arguments from authority and try to take down your authority and therefore throw it out the door something that i've been thinking about a lot as a potential mechanism in the future where this could go so right now we're in this world where there are all these social media platforms and there's very little ability to distinguish fact from fiction. People have the people that they follow. You can tell things by the numbers, like, oh, this person has X number of followers, maybe I trust them, or everyone I'm seeing is saying this, therefore maybe I will be more likely to believe that. And that's sort of how the human psychology works. The more people we see say something, we are naturally, instinctively more inclined to believe it because it seems more prevalent. But what we don't have is people who are able to properly understand information weigh in on that information. What I would love to see, once we shift towards more of an independent type social network wherein it's a little bit more distributed, imagine if you had a platform wherein people could be verified in their expertise in some way. Now that could be through academic credentials, it could be based on other people rating their expertise as like in any given post about a particular topic. And it's like, oh, this person is consistently rated as being scientifically literate. And then you have a post where you see how many people who are scientifically literate 
upvote versus downvote it. And you can get the science score of that, cool. partic- that particular post alongside whatever the like uh, science score of the data source that they cited. It's like if someone says something, there should always be a requirement of some type of source. And then what is the trustworthiness of that source? Is it nature? Is it Facebook? Is it CBS? And between those sort of mechanisms, there should be this way of crowd vetting of scientific information in a way that would be better than any particular platform and like governing body. It's something that would take a lot of development, but I think it would be possible to do. Yeah, I think that would be super cool. And I know that there have been uh, discussions about this, uh, you know, floated to um, some of the bigger platforms about, let's say, like doing a verification for someone like you or me, you know, who have, you know, so some at least people know, hey, this person has the credentials and, you know, that I have the licensure that, you know, I'm maybe a more trusted source of information. I know that's like being considered because I, I think I do feel some sympathy, right? Again, going back to the Fauci principle, the degree of difficulty of a task, right? And I think there's a high degree of difficulty for these larger platforms to, you know, in, in so many different areas of, like, you know, like, what is racism? Like, should this be taken? Is this free speech? Is yeah. this, you know, the KKK in Skokie? Do we let this, you know, like, and I'm like, I don't fucking know. Like, if I were back in Skokie, like, And actually, I was born in Skokie. Anyway, um, you know, if I were, you know, I'd probably be like, no, they shouldn't be allowed. But then you think about it and you're like, oh, there's something, you know, beautiful about that, that, you know, someone at the end of it. Anyway, you know what I'm getting at. Yeah. But, yeah. That's why I think it should be the best. The platform should not be the arbiter of truth. We don't want the Facebooks and Googles and TikToks of the world to be the ones to decide if that is misinformation. Because that's not their job. They are a social platform. They're here to provide us with tools. So, so but, but when it comes to Malone, then you said that that should have, you agreed that should have been taken down, right? The reason why, well, first, I don't think that like, uh, Joe Rogan should be kicked off of Spotify. I think that that episode ideally should be taken down as sort of an exception situation where in the scientific consensus, it's like we went and published the letter of like a group of scientists okay. trying to get it taken down. That was essentially a large scientific consensus trying to say, look, this is misinformation. This is not Spotify being our Mm. in-house scientist is evaluating it. It's okay that they allowed it to be published in the first place because it's just him publishing on it. But once there is a certain level of expert consensus that this is potentially harmful misinformation, then yeah, at that point, that should be something that could be taken down. Yeah, so you're saying we just need a better system of that so that the social media companies don't have to be the arbiters where they maybe there is a panel or there's, you know, there's there's a certain threshold and that's still probably difficult to decide if, you know, like, what do you need a 70 percent before you take it down? Or, you know, it's like it it gets interesting. It definitely does. Like, there's no one perfect solution. Like what I was talking about before is a potential way in which a social media platform could be designed where they provide the tools for independent vetting that allows for certain better fact checking and like expert reviews and such. But they can provide the tool, but the platform themselves will never be the actual determinant of truth from the science side of things. 
Yeah. Well, I know, you know, and I don't know, I don't know how they make those decisions and maybe some of these bigger companies, you know, like Google and it's like YouTube owned by Google. I mean, they have a whole health department and a chief science officer and, you know, I, so I don't know how those decisions are always made. And that, and that was interesting too, right? Because there's certain things that are just obvious, right? Like a Alex Jones character or something getting on and saying the vaccines or, you know, the reptilians create, you know, like shit like that. I mean, where it's yeah. pretty obvious, but then there's other situations. So I remember one where I was asking you if you knew of like, you know, Dr. Michael Osterholm um, and he was on the uh, advisory, you know, when Biden was coming in, he was on the COVID advisory board. Uh, and, you know, so, I mean, he's someone who's like extremely reputable, um, you know, has the credentials as, pretty much gotten it right just about every time he's on the side of much more cautiousness. Um, and he actually had uh, some, he got doctor, he had something taken off of YouTube, um, which was like pretty shocking um, because he, you know, I think he's been, he was a little, he was like critical of cloth masks, like in a certain situation um, or like you like cited a study where it was kind of more in the vein of like, this isn't enough, or this is like pretty ineffective compared to what we should be doing, like kind of thing. Sure. And it got taken off and he had to like go appeal and he had his like connections and the Biden administration to try to get this back up. You know, and you know how, and I can only imagine, I don't know how censorious TikTok is with co and like YouTube's going to be much more. Like I can't even imagine do you I get videos you, taken down a lot? I mean, so I know a lot of the health creators in the space mm -hmm. and a lot of them get videos taken down constantly. They get videos put under review as soon as they publish it. And most of that is because there is a large contingent of users who go and report all right. these videos as being hate speech, as being misinformation, as being, it's this mm -hmm. active attack that because the TikTok system is automated below a certain threshold, that there's no even human oversight for it. It's, I don't think there's any. I mean, I think I wouldn't be surprised if it was all rope. You know. There's some. So, like, I know that once a video gets past like a million views, at that point, in general, you typically get some type of uh, in TikTok employee who looks at it. Th at least that's what it was a little while ago. And there's definitely Maybe, yeah. the appeals process will often go through a human. Well, sometimes. And there's been a lot of dialogue now between some of the health creators and TikTok trying to work with them. I'm mean, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. Like yeah. I actually, I've spoken to people at Facebook who actually reached out to me to see if I would like, be an cool. advisor for their health, like, the exact thing you're talking about, yeah. how to determine health information in certain ways. Like they, they have, this whole network of advisors that they use and in-house and people that they use. And I think it could be good, you know, to have that sort of verification credential, you know, that does show that you have some backing. Do you know, um, your Haley, your psych pharmacist? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So she's in here now and she just gets her videos, just get flagged. Every single one is under review. And I mean, it's really very nice. Like, here's how the structure of melatonin yeah. and it's like, yeah, it's all just fun science. Yeah. And it's, you know, not dangerous and, you know, and she's highly credentialed, but she, you know, like, it, you know, for me, I, for me, it's never like the scientific, whatever side of what I do. 
but it's like, like I have one video where I like I jokingly someone mad at his laptop and yelling at you know and then at the end of the video I take a hammer and I go to hit it I don't even I don't, obviously don't hit it but it's just like video ends right and then eventually like a month later that got taken down for dangerous and acts yeah and then I appealed it it didn't a lot of times my appeals do get probably most of the yeah. time they get overturned but I was like it's just like how does that happen you know it's like mine almost makes something the last video I had that got taken down was actually about this stuff <laughs> It's this is a uh, keto alcohol that's oh, basically. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I saw you talk like, about that. Right? It's hard ketones. It's essentially not ethanol. It's something called D one three butanediol, which is another type of alcohol molecule that has some similar metabolic pathways in the body. But I was talking about that, and then they like pulled my video for talking about like banned substances even though it's not actually a regulated substance at all yeah but it has the word alcohol so <laughs> are you are you keto no i uh, Haley's have, keto so she was wondering <laughs> so i typically have like a cyclically ketogenic diet meaning i sometimes go into ketosis yeah. sometimes not um is that like the tim ferris diet the tim ferris diet is more of a slow carb situation yeah well, I guess he talked about that in one of his books, yeah, where it's like a keto, like a whatever you just... ketogenic. Yeah, it's there's some evidence that if you're pure keto all the time, it could have some negative impacts on hormones, especially for women. For men, it's not as bad, but there's I think some value in periodically going off of carbs. And just in general, I have a pretty high fat diet with healthy fats, but yeah. I'm definitely not. Uh, full-time keto Talk about this stuff gets broken bad. down into ketones in your body so like literally beta hydroxybutyrate is what it gets broken down into yeah talk about a, a scientific study that is just back and forth you know of what diet consensus is best and you know keto and there, it's just like the human body anything with and how differentiated it is it just seems like that is the most fickle or malleable to all the disciplines is like nutrition science. It's, it's something that fascinates me. Like I have been deeply uh, involved in researching like for my own use, the uh, nutrition science for like the last decade, because like one of my hobbies is biohacking. It's literally, literally trying to make use of the latest medical research to improve my own performance in various ways. And that includes nutrition and includes like exercise, mm -hmm. all sorts of different fun gadgets, compounds, stuff. But you are like a Tim Ferriss character. I really like Tim. He's great. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the issues with nutrition science is that it is so hard to isolate variables. Anytime you're talking about what people ate, like how do you even track it? You give them food questionnaires. There have been studies done on the accuracy of food questionnaires and they're almost useless. Like, do you know what you ate last week? Then you have people like they answer a questionnaire once a month and you think that's accurate. You think people are going to tell you how often they ate ice cream. It doesn't do anything. It's like the majority of studies that show that red meat is harmful. Well, when you're talking about people who eat a lot of red meat because they go out to McDonald's twice a week and then Burger mm. King once a week. And how many co confounding variables do you think? And do you yeah. think that their diet is going to be healthier or not as compared to the vegan who is super health conscious in every way 
and therefore they have lower heart disease. Like it's not necessarily yeah. that red meat yeah. causes heart disease. Yeah, well, it's like are you getting grass fed from Whole Foods, and then okay, well then the Whole Foods guy, they're you know they're healthy in other ways too, and yeah, it is it is wild. I just I don't trust any of it anymore. I mean. It, what you know? What about like the green? What was it like the green zones? Where you got the most centurions? The blue like, what do you think about the, the what the blue zones? The green zones where you don't want to be. <laughs> Stay out of the green zones. Stay out of the green. Um, I mean, but I mean, like at the end of the day, you're like, you know, hey, maybe you have all these variables in the green zone. They eat a lot of olive oil and not a lot of meat, and they have these lifestyle. And it's like there's all these variables, right, that among the blue zones share. Yet it's like some of those probably don't matter. We just don't know which ones. Exactly. When you're trying to say, oh, let's look at all the similar variables amongst five, like 50 different cultures. What are you counting as a variable? Like, let's say the actual thing that was the most uh, predictive of longevity was social connection, which we know is yeah. highly linked to it. Yeah. And you say, okay, the people living in the Mediterranean and the people living in the nice island in the... Sardinia. Like, yeah. It's like, oh, well, they all happen to have like this nice tribal structure or multi-generational homes. But yeah. that wasn't something that was looked at because this was a nutrition study. They were just looking at the nutritional commonalities and they found, oh yeah, they all eat a lot of olive oil. It's you, you sort of need to be able to compare every variable and that's just really hard. So is it likely that if the blue zone people were on the Burger King diet, they would not have lived that long? Yeah, I, I would say so. But can you use that as the gold standard for longevity based health research? It's maybe indicative. It's fun to talk about. It may have some useful kernels of information, but it's like the China study was this famous study looking at, how meat was really bad for you based on all this data from China. And you, you look at the actual detailed breakdowns of all the things it did wrong and it, it's super high, but. All right. So we're in, uh, so we're at like nine, 15, 10, 15. Are you doing okay? I mean, we got to, it's getting a little late. Huh? Um, I'm doing pretty okay. I'd probably go for like another 10, 15 minutes and then maybe call okay. it. Perfect. Um, yeah, someone said here too. I had noticed that Joe Rogan had experts on the subject. It was that was actually an interesting conversation where he had it was like a heart surgeon and then another guy who was like, you know, kind of his argument was that like, yeah, just like what you said with like the Burger King, however, is that looking at people who eat a lot of vegetables and meat, you know, and this guy being like, Hey, every single person, you know, I'm pulling fat directly out of their arteries. And it was kind of it was an interesting conversation. I walked away kind of like, I don't know. Um but, all right, I'm going to just throw some science questions at you that are just coming in my head. Go for it. Yes, no. Kids under five, should they be vaccinated? Yes or no? <laughs> well, right now, we don't have a approved vaccine for kids under five. Pfizer just submitted for their EUA. Mm. And what we current... Their submission was very interesting because... The, they were using a dose of three micrograms of the vaccine. And they showed that there was an immune response in kids aged six to 23 months, but no immune response in the kids that were basically two to five. And what they're trying to say is we give us the EUA on a rolling basis so that the younger kids will get it. And the kids that are two to five 
we'll get the first two doses. And then by the time we had the data from the third dose, which we predict will now show an immune response, then they'll have already started in the process and you let us get this head start. That's a bit controversial because this is like the first time that someone's trying to get an EUA for something that hasn't even shown efficacy yet. Is it, but is it likely though? Like, like kind of one of those common sense is like, okay, well, it works for everyone else. Like, isn't it pretty likely that, you know, for a kid, you stick them, they'll probably be fine and it'll probably have benefit, you know, or at least. But- well, it's highly likely that there is a dose that'll get benefit. My, like my guess would be that if they had used a higher dose at the start, they would have been seeing that immune response in those kids. Like, Saying you're not seeing it in the, you are seeing it in six to 24, but not in the two to five Mm. sort of implies that that three micrograms was enough for the tiny body weight of the toddlers, like the, the super infants, but not enough for the young kids. So they needed a higher dose. Okay. Let's just say then that we had one that is of the same efficacy safety as what we do now. Yes or no. I would say. Ideally, yes. The reason being okay. so that we're going to get pissed. <laughs> I love it. Now, whether or not you should mandate it is different from whether or not I would mm-hmm. want to do it. I would say that in an abstract sense, it makes sense to do it. The reason being that kids at that age, I would not be very worried about from a negative, in, like negative disease perspective. Now, not very does not mean not at all, because we are seeing hospitalizations in young kids, and anything we could do to stop that would be very good. But even more relevant than the hospitalizations we see in that, that age group is their ability to transmit it. And all the data we have now really shows that kids can still act as transmission vectors. Their viral loads are pretty much as high as adults. Really? And even That's when they're asymptomatic, oftentimes they could have the same viral load as an adult. And be just thought, as likely to spread it. That, and that actually was one of the questions I was going to ask you because I thought before that, um, you know, kids are less likely that schools are maybe not a main vector of transmission as we thought it should could be. Earlier in the pandemic, the thought was that kids were less likely to transmit. And there were several studies showing that kids were roughly half as likely to transmit it as adults were. The problem was that was during a time when schools were closed, adults were going to work and going out shopping, and the exposure levels were totally different. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the kids at that point were less likely to transmit it, but it wasn't necessarily because of the disease dynamics so much as the social dynamics. And what we're seeing is that when you actually look at the disease progression in kids, it's not as likely to put them in the hospital or have severe disease progression. But they still spread. But they still get a high enough viral load to spread mm-hmm. it. And the household transmission is quite high. And that's a problem less for the kids and more for the potentially more vulnerable people around them. Okay. Very interesting. So then that brings me to the next. It's kind of like a would you rather game. Yeah. Okay. So... One of these two scenarios, either kids go back to school, no restrictions, no masks, or they, we continue, you know, taking extreme precautions. The kids who do go wear masks and mostly virtual learning still kind of like we did at the beginning. Uh, I don't like either of those options. My preferred option would, I don't, <laughs> I'm not going to go with the yes or no questions here. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm just kidding, yeah. But I think that returning to in-person learning, learning is very important, both for the kids and for the parents. Mm-hmm. But doing it safely is also very important. And I think we now have the ability to do it safely. And there are a couple components to that. So masking does reduce transmission, transmission risk within a school. Is it always necessary? That depends on the community transmission rates in that area. Mm-hmm. But also, it depends on the, the ventilation and air purification present in that classroom. So a lot of classrooms, and this is something that is unfortunately overlooked, like everyone talks about masks or not, distance or not. Whether or not you get sick in a room is dependent on whether or not virus particles can go from one person to another. If you are in an airplane, that airplane gets between 30 and 40 air changes per hour, meaning that the number of times per hour that the air is cycled through is very, very high. In a classroom, it's usually around two or three. So you're stagnant then. What that means is that if I uh, cough, those particles can remain in the air for hours and only very slowly get diluted. And if I'm a constant source in the room, they can build up and really affect a lot of people. So you're saying that, I mean, so I, in an ideal world, maybe there'd be a little more distance. There would be some air, better air purification. I have to have sex. So yeah, better air purification uh, and masks. Or would that be like, would, would so, you still advocate for masks in school? I would advocate for determining a risk threshold. And masks are one piece of the puzzle, one part of the honeycomb defense. If community transmission is low enough and you have the right levels of ventilation and air purification, and ideally the kids are vaccinated, then it might be that masks are not necessary. There are a lot of like risk calculators and models that we've built out that you can look at all these different variables and how they impact the transmission risk. And as long as you stay below a certain threshold, that could be fine. And I would say the target would be to not have to have everyone wear masks because it's not very comfortable. But in many cases, especially right now, given Omicron, right now, if you're going back to school, then I think masks are absolutely important because current transmission rates are just too high. I think we will get to the point where it will no longer be required to wear masks in classrooms so long as the other conditions are met. And it really is about figuring out the aggregate risk level with a proper evaluation. Makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, Yeah, you know, sounds very complicated, (laughs) you know, like with schools. I mean, like, what do I do? Do Maybe some of it's expensive, but I mean, that does make a lot of sense. I think it's hard to get that communicated and you know it's like okay you know it's like measuring all these variables of okay well what's our community risk and this variant and, and then yeah. school boards and then the principals like I don't know, I i've got a massive excel spreadsheet that yeah, <laughs> has, like, yeah all I mean, these variables that you can put into it yeah and then you got people pay. so yeah i could just see that's why it's such a you know hot button issue um and like for example like in chicago um you know, there's these big fights in this massive school board versus the mayor, who's quite liberal, right? And the school board where she's saying, like, no, like, this is devastating. Kids need to be back at school. But the teacher's like, well, you're putting me at risk. Where would you land on that? Because, you know, it's like, like, wouldn't like 99% of these teachers who, um, you know, are v- probably vaccinated, 
um, wouldn't really be at that high of risk. Um, you know, should, yeah, like, like, where do you go with that? Because yeah. I mean, there's all those secondary effects, especially in Chicago, of kids who are, you know, going to be on the streets and fall way behind. But there's going to be these secondary effects down the road, which we don't fully know. So I guess I'm getting into too many questions here at once, but I'm going to hit that. I guess my response would be pretty similar to the last one, which is I would not have a blanket policy so much as a risk threshold and set of guidelines for determining how to figure out where you currently sit. In certain schools, I think it would absolutely be safe to return to in-person learning. In some of those, right now, odds are all of them should require masking based on current, like the Omicron transmission levels. But maybe in a month or two, that would not be the case. But I think that the way that this should be handled is not a statewide mandate in either direction. It's this is the risk threshold as determined by epidemiologists that is fairly safe from a community transmission perspective, i.e. that will be enough to limit exponential growth of any sort of uh, pandemic wave. Yeah. And then based on that, what type of allowances can we have in terms of dropping various added like uh, restrictions? Yeah, no, yeah. Like, it's easy to use the political, like politics likes to condense things down around talking points, but that's not yeah. how we should be thinking about this. It's, it should be from the actual quantitative, mm-hmm. like scientific perspective. So we, you know, we focus, right? So we have this monster that's come. You just plug in the phone, but I'm listening. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, so we have this monster knocking at our door, right? And it's this big, scary monster, and we need to put all of our attention on the monster. We have to put all, you know, a ton of money because this monster is going to do a lot of damage. Now, let's say after a couple of years of putting all of our attention on it, is it possible, right, the metaphor there would be that we're ignoring all of these other issues going on behind us. So, like, it's really hard to quantify. And I mentioned, like, in our email, like, um, you know, the increase in overdose deaths, the kids falling behind in school, the trillions of dollars economically, the mental health, which is hard to, qu- it's harder to quantify that versus just, dead bodies. Right. And then you have, you know, you know, these effects almost like a Chernobyl, right. It's like 20 years down the line, we're going to see how do we take that into consideration? I think there's like a good possibility, especially as we're not where we were, like where you were in New York, where like it's Armageddon anymore and it's still happening mostly to the unvaccinated um, where we say, hey, these secondary effects are really adding up and it may lead to more deaths and more misery than us hyper-focusing on this monster that's still here that we got to kind of learn to live with. How do you weigh that decision? So I agree with you. There are a lot of downstream effects that are hard to account for. And there are a couple of ways of thinking about it. So number one, yes, these are not always very easy to measure, but in the last two years, there's actually been a lot of research measuring them. A mm. lot of modeling, a lot of case studies, a lot yeah. of observational studies. So there's a lot of data on the actual costs. Like we know the impact on suicide rates. We know the impact on depression being reported. We know like 
so yeah. many of these factors, there's actually a lot of good numbers about. So that absolutely can be taken into account in terms of yeah. the public health risk evaluation. No, that's not, that's not everything. There obviously are going to be factors here that we are not able to account for that for the next century, people are going to be studying what happened, trying to actually figure out which decisions were correct, which ones were not. From my own perspective, the approach I like to take is first, not overly cautious in the sense that I am not quite as pro-lockdown as a lot of the medical creators in this space mm. in some ways. Like, I think that there absolutely should be as much effort placed towards getting kids back to in-person schooling as possible, getting people back to social activity. Like, in the summer of 2020, I was very much advocating outdoor social activity because I had spent yeah. so much time studying the science of uh, disease transmission from the physics perspective. And I was thoroughly convinced that there was almost no chance of outdoor spread. And that's, that's entirely born well, out. You know, and you weren't, you know, and you weren't the only one. And that was kind of the con conclusion I came to as a lay person, just from the available data that the transmission was very little outside and then, you know, kind of sticking people together and here in Minnesota is cold. And, you know, you saw the transmission rates go up that I remember in the summer of 2020, like I was getting out there, even though they were kind of like, eh, you know, in California, some places are more strict than others, you know, but like California, they were closing down the outdoor spaces in the parks and it just seemed, you know, pretty I, excessive. The fact that they were closing down the parks and beaches, it was infuriating. Like, why, why are you limiting people's ability to go outdoors? You should be encouraging it. Here in New York, because we were hit so hard at the beginning of the pandemic, we had really high masking rates to the point where you would get yelled at on the street if you were walking around outdoors without a mask. Now, it was ex very much the culture to just be wearing a mask. So I would do it with full knowledge that if I'm walking around by myself in Central Park, me wearing a mask will have no practical benefit. That's why at, for, in those contexts, the mask I wore was basically just the cloth around face with maximum comfort because there was no practical benefit there. But there definitely needs to be more accurate science in that regard rather than over-caution. And we're at the point where we have a lot of data. It's just a matter of figuring out how yeah. can we become more comfortable with things while keeping the risk at an acceptable level. And it's not an easy question in terms of figuring out where that threshold lies. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's super tough. Like what do you I mean? Like, for example, you know, some people call it COVID theater, right? When, you know, I'm in Austin, I mean, you know, I'm in Texas and a couple and this, this applies here. So, for example, you walk into a restaurant, and everyone knows this little quip, but you walk into a restaurant, you got to wear your mask, but then you go sit down and you take the mask off. It's like, like we're still doing that. Like, what, is there anything to that? I mean, I'm, I'm, my mind's always open, but like... So, silly. I don't mind people wearing, like, because it's all a sliding scale and we're talking about population health, it's all about, in aggregate, what can we do to minimize risk while maximizing function and return to normalcy? So 
Yeah, it's a little bit ridiculous in terms of wear the mask for five seconds and then take it off. But one could make a case for, even though droplet spread is not the primary modality, aerosols are. The six-foot rule was based on droplet spread and not particularly accurate in that regard. But what is true is that when I release an aerosol, it sort of goes out in a cloud. And the amount you get exposed to is related to the distance that you are from me because it's uh, any sort of like, it's like a cubic square law where the concentration of a gas get, goes down with the distance from me. Meaning if I walk past you in a restaurant, you are more likely to get something from me than if I'm sitting across the room from you. And at least while I'm sitting down, then I'm fairly isolated from everyone else as opposed to walking right by you. And even though walking by is not going to be a long exposure time, there is some case to be made for, in aggregate, when this is happening across restaurants across the entire country, you might save on some cases by just only taking the mask off when you're a little bit farther from other people yeah, and you're so just like a percentage, right? Rather than yeah, spreading it, wear it for It's better to wear it for 20% than 0% and over time exactly. that adds up. It's kind of interesting too, like kind of the, the interesting thing in general with like COVID and people's thoughts is, right, even though like you look at that tiny number, right, if it's, and I know you said that you got to look at it, you know, in different brackets or whatever, but let's just say you aggregate it all and the mortality rate among everybody is, what is it, a fraction, you know, one-tenth of a percent or something? So... If you look at the death rate by vaccination status for uh, per 100,000 people, um, in the over 65 bracket for the number of deaths per 100,000 people, for vaccinated and boosted, it's 0.5, even for those over 65. So mm -hmm. that means for every uh, million people, you get five deaths. But for the unvaccinated, it's 44 per 100,000 which is 440 per million, meaning the death rate is significantly higher there. Yeah. I'm just saying for like a general point, let's say like you were to aggregate it and, and not even like prior to vaccine, right? This virus in and of yeah. itself, given the circumstances is, let's just say a 10th of a percent or, you know, whatever. It doesn't seem like a lot, right? But then when you look at that for 300 million people, now we're talking where we're at today. I mean, how many people have died I don't know, 800,000, 900 in the U.S., I could be way off, but, like, you know, that's a lot of fucking people, you know, yeah. and, you know, then we look at, okay, hey, it's not as effective with kids, you know, people under 20, where it's like, I don't know, it's like thousands of, it's still thousands of people, and maybe I'm wrong on that number um, of, like, let's say, like, I don't know, people under 35, you know, the people who matter, um, I did quotes for those listening, um, you know, who people you know, tend to care about, right? Like the younger people, that's still thousands and thousands yeah. of people, right? When then we compare it to 9-11, which was, you know, Americans and, you know, we always, there's different, we have different views when the cause of death is different, yet these are just still this many people who have died. And I think, you know, there's an unhealthy acceptance of that in some ways where it's like, oh, well, this is what happens. We have this natural disaster and not much we could do and we just need to move on. Um, but yeah, so I think there's that fallacy as well. Um, yeah, I guess one last thing, um, what should it be at a couple, 
Yeah, I don't know. Was there anything that you wanted to share to the people? I guess in the context of COVID vaccines, all of this, the, the one data point that people often still, for some reason, are confused about is how vaccines actually stop transmission. And that's one yeah. of the, yes. the difference between a seatbelt and a vaccine is that the seatbelt prevents you from dying if you get in a car accident with pretty low numbers there. Like the number of deaths prevented by seatbelts are not very high, and yet we all wear them. But the thing about vaccines and why the whole my body, my choice thing goes out the window is that it's a contagious disease and vaccines reduce your odds of spreading it. If you lower your odds of getting infected by a factor of 12, that means that if you are not infected at all, you can't spread it to anyone. That right there obviously shows that it stops transmission. And even if you do get infected, there are varying conflicting data points around the peak viral load being somewhat similar between vaccinated or unvaccinated versus a little bit lower in the vaccinated. But what is pretty well confirmed is that the infectious period is shorter when you are vaccinated. So the number of days that you're infectious is reduced. Well, that's some of the narratives I see that kind of make me mad. And I was talking about too, some of the narratives maybe on the one side where all they talk about, oh my God, everyone, there's cases, cases, but we're not looking as much at like what really matters with the hospitalizations, deaths. Yet in this situation, what really makes me mad, and I think there's a, an issue of communication here with the vaccines, right? I saying, hey, look, the vaccines with Omicron, look, they're still spreading. It's like, yeah, but in every single measure, you're less likely to get it. You're less likely to spread it. When you do get it, it's going to be less severe. Your odds of hospitalization and death are, dare I say, almost minuscule, depending on you know your average person. You know, and that's and that I feel like is not talked about enough. And it's easy to say, well, look, people are still getting it. Some people end up in the hospital, but it's like in every way, it dampens the ability for this disease to affect us. Yeah. Exactly. Like why, even if it's not perfect, it's so much better than not having it. The fact that, you know, people with Omicron, like if we weren't vaccinated during this Omicron wave, forget hospitals being over full, the graveyards would be over full. The difference between exponential spread and linear reduction in severity is massive. Yeah. Yeah. It goes back to my, my shack fallacy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, it's exactly. like, you know, you're, you're missing comparison. You know, and, I, and I'd be remiss not to ask this real quick, but like, maybe it's just opening up a huge bag of worms. But um, the man, you know, people keep asking the mandates. What's the deal? <laughs> what's the deal with the mandates? What is the deal <laughs> with mandates? The point of a mandate and where you get into the question of, what are our personal rights versus governmental rights? It's where my rights end are where other people's rights begin. Meaning I can do whatever I want as long as it doesn't infringe upon other people's freedoms because my freedom isn't worth any more than their freedom. It's why I can't go and take your stuff because while I have the right to do Mm -hmm. what I want, it doesn't extend to taking something that is yours. So, When it comes to me doing something that is potentially damaging for someone else, yes, I have the right to decide 
things about my body. And there should never be any mandate that requires someone to get a vaccine in a vacuum if they are just like staying in their house, working from home. Absolutely, they should never be required to get vaccinated. If they're just going and doing things outside, they should not be required to get vaccinated. Mm. If they are working in an environment wherein they will potentially be a transmission vector, especially in the context of potentially being a link in a chain towards the more vulnerable population, then suddenly that is where your personal freedoms over your body start impacting the freedoms of other people. Why are you more justified in walking into a restaurant than someone else is when they have done something to minimize your risk from them as opposed to you not wanting to minimize their risk from you? Yeah, absolutely. In an ideal world, we would just choose to do the right thing, right? But I think that there is a weird, an interesting element, though, because it's like we're putting a f- taking jab and you putting a foreign substance in your body. It's just not a good look, right? Like, 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 where do we draw the line short of holding someone down and sticking them with it? You know, I know like China. I mean, they take these incredibly draconian measures. It was interesting when I was kind of doing a little research before talking to you, like. China, actually, their deaths per million are so incredibly low. I was like shocked. I was like, this is, they're like, it's like unbelievable, you know? So, but where do you draw the line? It's like, okay, we could disincentivize. Hey, you can't work. You can't go to this restaurant if you choose not to do that. And, you know, it's just, yeah, it's like, where's that line of, you know, freedom and not getting a foreign substance put in your body? And Well, again, there should never be a case where you are absolutely required to get injected with anything like if you are just being fully isolated from everyone in the extreme case that is obviously not a situation where there should ever be a mandate that requires you to get it the question is if you work in an old age home should it be allowed oh, yeah. them to mandate it so most people i think well not most but a good number of people would be less contentious about that if you are literally working with old immunocompromised folks you should only be allowed to do that if you are vaccinated. I think oh, most sure. people would agree about that. Yeah. So now we have no longer, we've moved away from the question of absolute questions of personal freedoms. Mm-hmm. And we've moved into a question of risk. So now the, it then is a matter of what is the risk threshold at which yeah. point your personal freedoms infringing upon someone else is not onerous enough to require some added move by you. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. And I think people, we, we forget, like they've always been mandated for schools, you know, MMR. And I granted, I think there's a, well, this doesn't affect kids the same way. And should we, you know, but still, I mean, this is, oh, this is nothing new. And, yeah. you know, people who were living through the Spanish flu, there was not that kind of reluctance when, you know, you have to stare it down in the face you know, and also, then when, you, when you're the one at risk, you know, some of those skeptical things go away pretty quickly and you start to make rational decisions pretty quick when it's about you. Well, <laughs> some people, but you know, what's a lot riskier than a vaccine? Like everything. <laughs> Tylenol. Yeah. Yeah. Like if I, I'd be willing to bet if like I gave everyone like, you know, had to eat a head of lettuce, you know, to, COVID, I bet more people would probably die from the lettuce than, but I don't know, like I, I'd probably put my money on, you know what I mean? Like there's, 
like you kind of said, like almost no one has died from it, you know, from a, the vaccine. Yeah, and it's, probably a lot of people die from lettuce, you know. There are a small fraction of people who, I mean, the better argument in a sense is that because it provokes a strong immune response, people will sometimes have to take off of work for a day or two. That is a hardship on them that mm -hmm. ideally it would be better for them not to have to experience. So there is some negative side effects to it. That's not a long-term going to destroy your health side effect, but it's a, yeah, you don't feel good for two days. Some people get pretty knocked out by it. And that is an imposition. There's like a pop, a segment of the population which hasn't gotten vaccinated because they're li living like day by day and literally have not wanted to be floored for two days because then they can't pay rent. Like that itself is its own problem. Yeah. Which most people won't happen from a head of lettuce, but. <laughs> Probably be more salmonella than the people. Yeah. yeah it's <laughs> but no one would be resistant. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah. kind of those, those goes back like, to there's so many psychological fallacies that are just being exacerbated. And, and part and of that is on the communication, like even calling it a jab, like that's, I know, yeah. Like, I get annoyed at that terminology because it is it brings up negative imagery in a way that I think is not helpful. Like, gen yeah, no. Like I remember you said like earlier, you said that I was like, <laughs> just kind of tickle. You're like, yeah, getting the jab. I'm like, that doesn't sound very good. You know, it's not great. That's not great marketing. You know, and kind of the, with the fallacies. I'll try to make this the very last thing. I'm so sorry, but. Um, I got the third, I got the booster. I, so I got Pfizer one and two. The second night, oh my God, Haley's like talk about herd immunity. I'm like, gosh, it doesn't matter. But um, I got Pfizer one and two. Um, didn't, I felt a little something that night. Didn't hit me that bad. Mm -hmm. The third one I got that night, I started to feel a little weird, whatever. But then I got really sick. Like I got like, like the chest infection, right? And I mean, I, I had to like look it up and I'm like, Right. It would be really easy for my mind to jump to this was the day I got it. This is from the vaccine. Yet there's still that coincidence factor that it was probably a coincidence. I mean, it's sampling bias. It's well, and confirmation bias. Essentially, when you're talking about something that literally millions of people are getting and you've got this little recency effect going on, you got the vaccine, anything that bad that happens to you from a health perspective in the week after getting the vaccine, you're going to anchor on that vaccination. And if you are already primed to view that as something that could be harmful, then yeah, you're going to like assign causation where you've got no ability to determine it. That's why when the actual governing bodies in charge of these things are looking for negative side effects from the vaccines, it's all about looking at the relative incidence rates for a given negative side effect between people who have been vaccinated or not been vaccinated based on units of time. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes, makes a lot of sense. And so, so you could just see how easy it is for your mind to jump there. Um, seriously, last thing, true, true or false, my idea of herd immunity, like, you know, you hear a lot about that. However, it is maybe as effective if not less effective than the vaccine, especially if you do multiple and it will wear off just like the vaccine. So if you have herd immunity, you should still get the vaccine. That is not enough. That is my understanding. Um, sure. So you mean natural immunity, herd immunity? Oh yeah. yeah natural yeah. immunity. Sorry. Not, yeah, she's asked about her. Yeah. yeah um, natural immunity. Yeah. Sorry. Um, 
natural immunity as compared to vaccine-induced immunity. First, it is so frustrating how this has become a anti-vax talking point that why should we get vaccinated when there is natural immunity? Because natural mm -hmm. immunity requires you to get COVID, which is bad. <laughs> the pe people die from COVID. So right there, there should never be a thought of why should I get vaccinated when instead I can go get sick? Because the whole point is to stop you from getting yeah. sick. Well, so they've already but, gotten it, you know. And then, so, so the question then is, that, you know? from a mandate perspective, should we be able to use natural immunity in place of vaccination? And if you could prove natural immunity. And here's where the data stands on the effect of natural immunity as compared to the effects of the vaccines. As of right now, with Omicron, if you had a prior COVID infection, you are less likely to get sick than someone who had a single vaccine dose, pretty comparable to someone who had two vaccine doses, mm -hmm. and significantly more likely to get sick than someone who had three vaccine doses. Natural immunity in the current context sort of is like 1.5, 1.75 vaccine doses in terms of how protective it okay. is. Oh, that's interesting. You can measure it just like that. That's interesting. It's, well, we can measure antibody titers. That doesn't quite take into account the B cell and T cell based immunity and the breadth of immunity. So there's a little bit more to it. But if you actually look at the hospitalizations and deaths from people with natural immunity as compared to vaccination, what we see is that it's basically booster, like vaccinated and boosted is significantly better than just natural immunity. Natural immunity in some studies is a bit better than two vaccines. It's a bit worse than two vaccines in other studies. And across the board, vaccination plus natural immunity is the best immunity that we've got. You, If you get COVID, then the way to keep yourself safer than everyone around you is to get vaccinated. Yeah, then you're like a because, superhero if you got natural yeah. immunity, if you got three vaxes, you're like, you're bulletproof, baby. The beginning of the summer, there was a study put out where they looked at people who had, the, this is when the uh, alpha and beta variants were circulating in limited regions, and beta had a, a strong degree of immune escape. That was the uh, B1351 that originated in Africa, South Africa. And it was a big concern because it was showing a really strong ability to evade immunity. And what they found was that it was able to evade antibodies induced by vaccines. It was also able to evade antibodies induced by natural immunity. But when you had someone who had natural infection plus vaccines, it showed by far and away the best neutralizing activity against that variant that was very different than whatever they were originally exposed to and what we, va what we vaccinated against, showing that the combination produces a great breadth of immunity. And what was fascinating was that even back then we were able to show that natural immunity plus two vaccines showed some level of cross-reactive immunity against SARS-CoV-1, a totally different coronavirus that because this combination produced a wide enough breadth of immunity, it was able to have a decent amount of neutralizing activity against a totally different coronavirus, which bodes very well for function against other variants of SARS-CoV-2. And we're now seeing that when you have natural infection plus multiple vaccinations, you are even more likely to be protected against other variants. That's the ones who are doing by far the best against Omicron. Yeah. Well, thanks for enlightening us, man. And look, I appreciate everything you're doing. Um, 
been following you for a while and I get a ton of value and, you know, I think we need voices like you, um, a voice of the science. <laughs> You're a great representative. You are a young Bill Nye on TikTok, right? This is Evolve. It's the next generation. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I've enjoyed your content for a while as well. So it's always good to be able to have a we'll conversation. We'll do this with again in a, in a year when we're still yeah. dealing with this shit. <laughs> Another fucking variant. You told so where me. Where are we at now? <laughs> and then I'll ask you about the Wuhan lab and why it came from there for, for another time. <laughs> All right, buddy. Sounds good. Hey, All have, right. have a it's good been night. Fun. I appreciate it. And I'll let you know when we yeah. put this out. Awesome. I look forward to it. Thank you, sir. Right. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye.